regular people are taking their knowledge and content, packaging it up in an online course, and they're making a living doing it. But not everyone is successful with online courses. There's a right way and there's a wrong way. And I'm here to help course creators actually succeed with online courses. Hi, I'm Jacques Hopkins, and this is The Online Course Show. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to The Online Course Show. Today, we're going to talk about a topic we don't really cover much around here, and that's selling your online course business. I think there's probably two main reasons that it doesn't come up much. First of all, this is my podcast and I don't really have any plans of ever selling either of my businesses. Certainly that could change, but as of now, running this brand, The Online Course Guy, which includes this podcast you're listening to now and working with all of the people inside of my coaching program, is my true passion. And my other business, as most of you know by now, is Piano in 21 Days, which the way I see it these days is it's kind of my sandbox to play in, to experiment in, and share results with you all. I think the biggest thing that sets me apart as an online course business coach is that I'm still actively running my own online course business in a hobby niche. Most of the time when I talk about what's working in online course businesses, I'm talking from the perspective of Piano in 21 Days, or maybe what I'm seeing from podcast guests or those in my coaching program, and not necessarily from my course business about course businesses. So currently, I could not be happier with my businesses, and I feel so blessed to be where I am. And like I said, I can't really see selling either one anytime soon. And the second reason I think the topic doesn't come up much around here is because to a lot of people, it doesn't really make sense to sell a course business. What I mean is most course businesses are built around you. You're the face of it. And without you, as the business owner, is there really a business? So I would certainly challenge this second reason. There are things that you can do. There are systems you can put in place. There are people you can put in place to where you can absolutely sell an online course business and sell it for a lot of money potentially. So what you're going to hear today is the story of how a guy I know recently sold his online course business for eight Figures, eight figures, that means minimum of 10 million. This guy didn't want me to share the exact number, but he was comfortable with me telling you it is eight figures, so minimum of 10 million, so possibly more than that. And the guy's name is Jason Dion, and his courses are primarily on cybersecurity and IT. He's been on the podcast three times before, so many of you may be familiar with him, and it's kind of cool to go back and listen to those previous episodes he's been on because you can really hear the journey of how he got to this point. He was first on back in 2018 on episode 79 of The Online Course Show, which wasn't long after he started his business. He was back on again for episodes 98 and 154. So it could be fun for you to go back and listen to those episodes after you hear today's. 
But what you're going to get here in this episode is not just an interview with me and him. What you're going to hear is a recording of a workshop that he did for the members of my coaching program. Jason is a member himself and very graciously offered to put on a workshop for the other members once he actually sold. In just a minute, you'll hear the recording of that workshop, and I wanted to just mention that to you because you're going to hear other members of the program asking him questions and interacting and so on. And what he shared is just so, so valuable. Even if you never have any plans to sell like me, this could still be one of the most important episodes that you listen to because the things that you need to do to get your online course business ready to sell are still really, really good things to do, even if you never plan to sell. It's things like systems and automation, it's having a top-notch team, and plenty more that Jason will share here shortly. The feedback that I've gotten from the members who attended the workshop live was incredible, so I just had to share it with more people, and that's why you're hearing it here today. So before I play for you the workshop recording, I have to mention Kajabi. Kajabi is software where you can run your entire course business in it. You can host your course or membership or coaching program right inside, of course, but you can also have your entire website there. You can have your landing pages there, your order forms, accept payments. It's got everything you need in one place. It's what I use to run my course businesses, and I recommend that you do that as well. And when I built my business from scratch using Kajabi, I recorded the entire process and turned that into a course. So you can follow along with every click that I make as I build my business in Kajabi and just do exactly the same for yours. That course is available free when you sign up for a free trial of Kajabi at everyclickkajabi.com. You'll also get a full 30-day trial instead of the normal 14. Once again, that is everyclickkajabi.com. All right, so the ad read is over, and now I'd like to officially welcome you to the workshop on how to sell your online course business for eight figures. Let's go ahead and get started. Uh, this is a, a, wor- a workshop of sorts that we're doing, um, and I am not going to be the main presenter today. That is going to be one Jason Dion, who I met. Uh, Jason, do you do you know when what year we met? I looked it up about ten minutes ago. Um, I've been listening to your show since I think twenty seventeen or twenty eighteen. I think I was first on your show back in like twenty nineteen. So we've we've known each other for at least four years. I think that you've known of me, and I think I've known of you for five or six. Yeah, twenty eighteen is when when you had first reached out, and you've been on my podcast many times now. Uh, I didn't realize it had been that long. I mean, that's five years. Five years. We're 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 getting up, we're getting up there in age, and and one of us has recently sold our business for a lot of money. And, uh, and that of course is Jason. <laughs> it wasn't me collectively, uh, collectively we've sold our business for eight figures. Um, it's pretty, pretty cool. Uh, so today we're going to be talking about, um, selling an online course business. And that's not something that everybody's interested in, in doing. I don't have plans to ever sell mine, but that could certainly change one day. And one thing I think that is interesting about this is that a lot of the things from, from my knowledge, and we'll learn more from Jason, but I think a lot of the things that you need to do in an online course business in order to get it ready to sell or to be able to sell are things you probably could and should do anyway. And so I think there's a lot of value here, even if we have zero plans to ever sell for those two reasons. One is they're good things to do anyway, most of them. And two is, hey, it could change one day, so you might as well be set up. And so I'm excited to uh, to learn along with you all 
I think historically in my mind, it's, it's always been like an online course business is one that's probably difficult to sell because a lot of times it's built around us, right? How, how can you sell a business that's like fully reliant and built around us? We're the face, we're the one on the camera in our videos, um, inside the courses, in our marketing and so on. So I'm curious to, you know, hear, hear Jason's take on that. Um, he doesn't have like slides prepared. This is going to be super duper casual. Most of you are pretty familiar with, uh, with Jason have met before, you know, virtually some, I think at least one of you have met in person before as well. Yeah. I see John um, and I have had lunch together. Uh, he actually stood by my offices in Florida and we hung out for about half a day. <laughs> so it's good to see you again. Yeah. John. Good to see you, Jason. Congrats. That's amazing. So we'll keep it super casual. It's not like, Hey, we're going to do a presentation for 45 minutes and then we're going to do four, 45 minutes at Q and a Jason's just got his lessons learned that he's going to share with us. Feel free to stop and ask questions during after and so on. Um, but really incredible what he's been able to accomplish. He, he just keeps moving forward and I've learned so much from him over the years, um, about running an online course course business and, even you know chatted plenty along the way with thinking about selling okay i'm selling here's the here's where where i'm at and now he's officially sold and and had a very successful um exit we're not going to share the exact number but i think he's comfortable saying eight figures which holy crap so with that uh jason thanks for doing this Hey, everybody. Uh, as Jock said, I'm Jason Dion. Uh, I am the founder of Dion Training. I uh, used to be able to say I was the CEO of Dion Training, but I'm not anymore because I sold the company and we brought in a new CEO. So it's taken me a little bit to get used to that, but that's okay. Um, yeah. So right now I am the founder of Dion Training and I am the lead instructor at Dion Training. And I'll give you a little bit of background of who we are, uh, what we do. And our model is definitely different than a lot of your business models. Um, and Jock and I have talked about this on his podcast several times where he has his piano business. It's one course, one product, one offer, very dialed in, very much a funnel, lots of advertisement stuff going into it, uh, as well as SEO that gets all his business and his sales. Um, but at the end of the day, it's one course with one product that he's really selling as his main offering. He's got a couple of other little upsells and things like that, but but really it's one thing. Uh, in my business, I have 40 plus courses. I think my last count was 44 courses, somewhere around there. Um, we teach a lot of different things, but I started out with one course and I also started on Udemy, which uh, some of you are familiar with, some of you aren't. Udemy is a course creation platform where they do all the hosting and marketing for you. You could put your courses on there and they've got an audience of couple hundred million students. And hopefully, uh, you know, it's kind of like going on Amazon, like someone's going to go buy a book, hopefully they buy your book, but they could buy anybody's book on that topic. And that's kind of how Udemy is. Um, they kind of helped me get started because I came from a YouTube background, making $50 a month on YouTube as passive income, uh, basically from ad revenue. Somebody told me, Hey, you should go check out this Udemy thing. I took my courses for that I had on YouTube, put them on Udemy, added some quizzes, added some PDFs and started selling them there. First month I did $58. Last month I did over $250,000 on Udemy uh, as, as a company. So uh, it can be a very profitable business. And I'm not even the number one guy on Udemy. I know one of the people who's in the top five and uh, he's made um, about halfway to eight figures last year on Udemy alone. So, so there is money to be made there, but you have to be in a topic that is very highly desirable uh, has a, a big range of audience, uh, because it is a numbers game there. The average Udemy student, I make about three and a half dollars for that student. Um, so it's not a huge amount per student or per enrollment. Um, but I do have almost a million students on Udemy and many of them have bought two, three, four, five, six, seven of my courses. And so that, you know, $3 can go to 20 or $30. And then I also have upsells on my site that I get them over to, to buy things like exam vouchers or labs or things like that.
Anyway, hey, long story just, short. Yeah, that, that's I mean, you know, with ClickFunnels, they talk about the two comma club, like a lot of people like a million dollars is a huge milestone. You have over a million students. I mean, that's just unbelievable. That's that's crazy. Yeah. And on my own site, I've only got about 25,000 students, right? My mailing list is about 75,000 people and I've had 20 to 25,000 people buy something directly on my site. But then between Udemy, which is my largest, it's about 800,000 students there. And I have another couple hundred thousand on LinkedIn. Uh, Those are kind of my two big platforms. And then my own site has a smaller number of people. But when people buy at my site, I'm making 100, 200, $500 per person on Udemy or LinkedIn. I'm making dollars, you know, sometimes five or ten dollars per student. So so it is a a scale thing, right? And if you have something that is a broad product, uh, like I know one of the folks in here, they do uh, things with like Azure apps and, and cloud-based stuff. You could do really well on Udemy, right? But somebody else here was uh, doing phishing. I remember talking with them a couple of months ago. Um, you know, you might get 100 or 200 people to buy on a phishing uh, course on Udemy and you might make, you know, 300 or $3,000, right? That's not nearly as exciting. So you're probably better off doing Jock's method where you're getting smaller students, much higher price, but you have the work of all the marketing and stuff too. Um, but we're not really here to talk about Udemy versus versus other. I just want to give you an idea of where I come from because I am a little bit different than Jock. Um, and then this goes into the concept of what do you want your business to be? And if you're thinking about selling one day, uh, and I will tell you when I built the on training, I was not thinking about selling. I had no intentions of ever selling this company. Uh, when I started it, I started it as a side hustle. Uh, I was in the military and I was working uh, full-time for the military. I knew I was going to be retiring April 1st of 2022 after 20 years in the military and the military for our pension, we get half our pay for the rest of our life. And so I was making about 10,000 a month. And my goal was if I get this to 5,000 a month, I won't have to go get a real job when I get out of the military. So at five years before I got out of my 15 year point, I started this, this company um, as a way for me to start creating passive income. And that's where I started on YouTube, making videos, trying to get ad dollars up. It took me six months. I got to 50, $55 per month. I was like, this ain't doing it. And then somebody introduced me to Udemy. Uh, first month was $58. Second month was 150. Third month was 260. Then it was 500. And by my 10th month, I was up to $10,000 per month. So my five-year goal, I ended up doubling that within 10 months by using Udemy. And it, it was really built as a lifestyle business. In that 10 months, it was me working on it and my wife working on it. After about a year, year and a half, I brought in some outside uh, contractors from the Philippines to help me as a virtual assistant and a video editor. And as I went to sell the company, we are now up to 23 contractors and employees in our company. Uh, About half of those are employees, half of those are contractors. All the ones in the States are employees, all the ones overseas are contractors. Um, And this brings up the idea of when you think about your business is I like to think about everything with the end in mind. I did not do that in this business. I stepped into this business because I was trying to make passive income so I wouldn't have to get a real job. And, and that's kind of where we ended up. Jock, I see your hands up. <laughs> yeah, Jason, real quick. I mean, Jay, Jay, James in the chat is asking like what it is that you teach. He's, he showed up a couple minutes late, but I don't even think you went over that. So for anybody not familiar, could you kind of explain your niche? Yeah, certainly. Uh, so I started out with cybersecurity courses. So I teach certifications. So in my world, in cybersecurity, project management, and IT service management, um, every job has certain requirements that are certifications. For instance, I know Jock used to be an engineer. That means you had to go take your PE exam at some point and get your professional engineering license, right? Or no, did you not do that? <laughs> Just trying to get off mute. Uh, I was, you know, it's weird for electrical engineering. You don't need that. That's really important for civil and then medium importance on others. So, uh, I never aspired to be an engineer for too, too long. I wanted to get in the business side quickly. So personally, no, but a lot of engineers, yes. 
Okay. Yeah. I have a friend who's a civil engineer and he was required to do it. And so for those of you who are familiar with Pat Flynn, that's what he started doing was his first passive income project was he made a book on how to pass the professional engineer's exam, right? Um, That's pretty much what I do, but in a video format. And I teach people how to pass their cybersecurity exams, their IT service management exams, and their project management exams. Um, So that's what my niche is. So the nice thing about a niche like that is I don't usually have to convince somebody to buy my product. Um, Well, I have to convince them to buy my product, but not buy the product. They already know they need the certification. They know they need a textbook or a video course or practice exams. And in my realm, specifically in CompTIA, there's really four big names in that space. Uh, Before I got involved, there was three big names in that space. And it's Professor Messer, Mike Myers, and um, um, Daryl Gibson. Um, I entered the space in 2017. By 2018, if you went on Facebook or Reddit and talked about CompTIA, my name started getting mentioned with those three guys. So it was our four names were kind of the first ones up. And so as my course was getting good results because people were succeeding in their exams, they were sharing that with other people because there is this dedicated grouping of people who talk about, hey, for my exam, I use Jock's course or I use Jason's course and they, they get this following behind you. And so most of my marketing wasn't me doing marketing. It was my students who had success telling other people about us. And that's what drove our, our name recognition and became this brand name. Um, you know, And then this goes into, do you want a lifestyle business or do you want a business that you want to expand and have a bunch of employees and overhead and all that kind of stuff, or to get to sell one day. And those are really kind of your three options with a business, right? Lifestyle is kind of like Jock. I would say, Jock, you probably have a good lifestyle business, right? It's it's you. You've got a couple of employees or contractors that work with you. It, it, it pays the bills. It makes you good money. You have a really nice lifestyle. But right now, you have zero desire to sell it to somebody else. You really don't have a bunch of expansion plans. You're not looking like, hey, I want to have guitar in 21 days and and jazz trumpet in 21 days and all that other stuff, right? You're just like, I got one thing. I'm happy with it. It's printing money. I'm just going to keep that thing going. And there is nothing wrong with doing that, right? But that is a lifestyle business. Um, when I first started this, I thought I was creating a lifestyle business. In fact, my first domain name was jasondion.com. Talk about things that are hard to sell, right? Yourname.com is going to be a really hard business to sell without you staying on and working for that business, right? Um, and a couple of years into it, I was like, you know, this is kind of dumb because if I ever want to have somebody else as an instructor, it's going to be really dumb having, you know, Jock Hopkins on jasondion.com. So instead, I created Dion Training because I am so creative with naming. I just took my last name and threw training, and that became the company name. Um, so again, I wasn't really looking to sell the business. So had I, if I was starting a business today, I would not name it something like jasondion.com or dontraining.com because it is so now tied to you as a founder. Um, using your name and, and something else is okay, like Dion Training, but it's still can can make it harder to sell and there's less companies that are going to be interested in that as opposed to if I was the information security institute right anybody could buy that you could take jason out put somebody else in and, and move forward with that business so that's one of the things i want to point out is when you're thinking about your name and your product being able to create a name uh that can be used and not tied directly to you is really beneficial because you will get a higher multiple if it's something that an outside investor can come in and isn't reliant on you to be there as the name in the face of the brand um so that's one thing to keep in mind The second thing is if you're thinking about selling one day, what structure you use for your company can make a big difference. And what I mean by that is for those of you who are Americans, uh, when you create your company, you can create it as a C-Corp, an S-Corp, or an LLC taxed as a C-Corp or an S-Corp. Or there's other things like sole proprietorship, doing business as, and all the other things. But really, if you're going to look to sell one day, you either want to be a C-Corp, an S-Corp, or an LLC taxed as one of those two. Then when it comes time to sell... They can either buy your business as is, they'll basically just take you off as the owner, put themselves on as the owner, and they'll continue to run it. 
or you can do what's called an asset purchase agreement. And this is what we ended up doing when I sold my company. Um, really, it comes down to uh, discussions with your lawyers and your tax folks. But the way you sell your company and the assets associated with it can have drastically different tax consequences based on how you're set up. So for us, when I went to sell, as Jock said, I can't give you the exact number because I'm under an NDA, but I will tell you it's greater than 10 million, less than 50 million. So pretty big deal. Uh, and tax-wise on that in the US is pretty heavy. Um, if it was taxed as ordinary income, that would be 37% of the money goes away. So on the low side, let's say I sold it for 10 million, that's $3.7 million in taxes that goes away like that as soon as you close, if you do a company sale. Now, on the other hand, if you do an asset purchase agreement where they buy your assets, but not your company, those assets are considered a capital gains under US, floor, uh, under US tax law. And so by doing that, you now have a 15 or 20% tax rate instead of a 37% tax rate. So instead of paying 3.7 million on 10, you're now paying 1.5 or 2 million on 10. So big difference, right? You're saving a million and a half to $2 million in taxes just by the way you structure the deal in the contract when you go to sell. So this is the, the, the big point I'm going to tell you is if you ever think you're going to sell one day, you want to make sure you have a really good lawyer on your side and a really good accountant and a really good broker who's done these deals before. Because I don't know about you guys, but I never sold a company before this. And if I was doing this on my own, I would have gotten taken to the cleaners by the acquisition firm. Not because they're trying to be bad guys, but their job is to get as much as they can for the least price they can, right? And so um, the initial offer I got when they talked to me directly was... Let's. I'm just going to throw fake numbers out here, right? Let's just say it was 10 million, right? Uh, if it was 10 million dollars as an offer, I then brought in a broker who has done these deals before, and he was like, "They're lowballing you. I can get you more." And now these brokers aren't cheap. Like my broker cost me eight hundred thousand dollars to do this deal, right? But we're talking about a deal between 10 and 50 million dollars. 800,000 is worth it. And with his phone call overnight, we got our price to go from let's say 10 to let's say 15. And those weren't the real numbers, but I mean, it was, it was pretty much that significant. It was about a 50% increase. Um, and I was like, that's that's pretty good. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty happy with that. And he goes, yeah, I think we can do better though, uh, because I've done enough of these deals. I've looked at the marketplace. I know what your competitors are, and I know who's available for sale and who's not. And really at the time, I was the last company in my space that was available for sale because most of my competitors had already sold. And so at the end of it, he was able to get me an 8x multiple on my profits so essentially, he paid me eight years of profits up front at closing for me to sell my company. And that was enough for me to say, yeah, that makes sense to me to do it. Um, but we were able to get from the initial offer of, let's say, 10 to almost double that just because I had a good broker, as opposed to trying to do it myself. And I see a lot of people, it's like if you're going to sell your house, right? You could sell it for sale by owner, but if you do, we're going to lowball you on the price because we know you're trying to save money on the commission and we know you don't have proper representation, right? But if you're selling it with a realtor, they're going to make sure you only take a deal that makes sense. So you're getting the maximum amount of money and they'll help you through the process because this is a can be a very long and drawn out process. And when you get into the acquisition world, um, when I was talking to my broker, he said that only about 30% of deals go from the initial offer to the actual closing and the transfer where you get cash in hand and you sell your business. There's a lot of chances for somebody to back out and a lot of chances for somebody to walk away, whether you can't agree on the price, whether you can't agree on the structure, whether they look in your books and it's not what you told them it was. And you said, oh, I'm making 2 million a year. And they're like, yeah, but you're not really making 2 million because like most of us who are entrepreneurs, you're probably not paying yourself a salary. And if I had to pay you a salary to stay on, which I will afterwards, um, how much are you going to want? Oh, I'm going to want 200,000 a year. Okay. Well then you're not at 2 million a year profit. You're at 1.8 profit because you didn't account for the fact that we pay, are going to pay you $200,000 a year to stay on after. Right. And all those things are things where the deal can get derailed at any point along the way. And having somebody help you through that process 
even if it's going to cost you 5% of the sale, is really, really worth it. Um, the other thing is that if you're thinking about going out and selling and not that somebody came to you, in my case, somebody came to us and we actually had three different companies come to us within a month period saying, we're interested in buying you. So I was able to play all three of them against each other to get the biggest or best offer for us. Um, but even if you're not doing that, if you have a good broker, they have contacts in the industry. My guy has a full Rolodex. And like literally when I called him up and said, hey, I got this offer, and I said, the company's name starts with A. He goes, oh, it's this company, isn't it? And I was like, yeah, how'd you know? He goes, oh, I work with them all the time. I know they're looking in your space and they want somebody. I know exactly who to call. Let me call them tonight and I'll give you, I'll get you a better offer by tomorrow. And it's the connections that you're paying for in that case. So I know a lot of people are afraid to pay for accountants and lawyers and brokers in a deal like this. If you're going to be selling for multi-millions of dollars, you definitely want them on your side. It, it's totally worth it. Okay. Um, so that's some of the first couple of things I would think about is what are you naming your product? What is your legal structure going to be? How are you going to sell? And then the next piece, once you start talking about selling is obviously money matters, right? Uh, let, I'm going to use Jock's business as an example, right? He, he's got his piano business and I don't know his exact numbers, but I'm just going to say for the for easy numbers and, and math, we'll say he makes a million dollars a year in profit and he makes $2 million a year gross. I don't know if those numbers are right. He doesn't have to tell us they're right, but we're just going to use those as an example as we go through, right? How much would we think his company is worth if he's doing gross 2 million and taking home a million dollars after paying everybody? What do you guys think that company would be worth? Wow. There's no right or wrong answers. I'm just trying to get an idea because everyone probably has a different thought process in their mind, right? And I'm going to ask Jock last because it's his company and he probably has a number he's thinking, I won't sell unless I get this number. <laughs> I mean, at the end of the day, it comes down to the multiple, doesn't it? I mean, you said you had eight, didn't you? Well, um, it, it, and, that, and that's a good point, right? A lot of companies will do it based on multiples. Some will do it based on multiples of gross. Some will do it multiples of profit or net. Some will do it on a weird calculation. Some won't even use multiples and they'll do it based on cash flow because they're more interested in the monthly cash flow you're generating as opposed to the annual profits you're generating. There's some companies that have sold that aren't profitable at all, but they've got a million users and a and a really strong user base. And like, well, you know what? You know, in in our case, the company that bought me. Uh, we are a direct-to-consumer company primarily. 95% of my business is direct-to-consumer. All the other companies in the portfolio they have are all B2B side. They're all doing 95% B2B and 5% B2C. So they're thinking, hey, we're going to buy Dion. Dion has no real B2B business yet, but they have a great product that everybody loves. We know how to do B2B. So we're going to go and hire a B2B salesperson, and we're going to we're going to fill up Dion's pipeline with B2B business, and they can instantly take us two, three, four X of our revenue in the next year or two years because they have all those B2B leads. Conversely, they're seeing us as a strategic partner for the other side because the other five companies in this particular portfolio that we're in, and the company that bought us has 200 different companies in portfolio, but the specific one we're in is the e-learning portfolio. It's all live, live training that's ILT, instructor-led training. I do everything asynchronous. So they're thinking, hey, Jason knows how to do asynchronous training. We could take all this content we have on the, on the synchronous side convert it into asynchronous training, and then have a B2C side. So for them, there was how much does Jason make that was important for a multiple. And that's one of the things I was looking at because I'm giving up my annual revenue. So you need to pay me a certain amount of that upfront for me to be giving you 100% of my company away. And what we ended up on was an 8x revenue. Um, but other companies, there is no multiple that works because you're zero revenue. You're profit neutral, for instance, right? Because you're in growth mode. And then they're looking at how fast are you growing and how many users you have and how many have bought from you before and how many repeat customers and all that other stuff that goes into it. So, you know, yes, it can be a multiple, but it doesn't have to be a multiple. And I will tell you, 8X is a really high multiple, 
Most mm. small businesses are going to get four to five X. I was able to push that up to eight because I was playing them against other companies. And I was also playing them against the fact that I really didn't care about selling. Um, if they didn't get me a number that I was happy with, if they said four X, I was not going to sell because honestly, I could sit here and twiddle my thumbs for the next four years and collect that four X revenue because my thing is growing all the time. And if I stop working on it, it will slow growth or it will stop growing but it's still already like, it's been like this for the last three or four years. So those are the kind of things you have to think about. It's not just a, a number at the end, you know, it, business is a personal business, especially for us as small content creators. Um, you know, it's your baby. Right. And, and I bet even if, let's say if Jock is worth a million dollars, profitable million dollars a year. If I told him I'll give him $5 million right now for his business, he'd probably tell me, yeah, not interested, not enough. Right. But if I said 10 million, even though it's a 10x multiple, he might be willing to sell, right? Or he may not because he's happy just the way he is. And so some of it in the negotiation is a personal thing about knowing the person. Um, but yeah, so you know, using those numbers of, of 2x as a top line and 1x as a profitable, um, I would say a business like Piano in 21 Days probably is looking at somewhere between 5 and 10 million, depending on how much they want him and how much his name and brand is worth in the marketplace. Uh, Piano in 21 Days has really good SEO positioning. It's been around for about 10 years. People know it. People like it. It's got great reviews. So he'd probably be closer to the higher side of six, seven, eight. But there's some things that are going to be uh, drawing back in his business that they're going to discount on, right? One of the big ones is every video is Jock. If Jock gets hit by a bus, there's no piano in 21 days, right? He hasn't proven that he can make it work with other instructors. Now, could he do that? Yeah. He can go film piano in 21 days version seven, and he can bring in uh, Emily or Renato. And now it becomes Jock on half the videos and Renato on half the videos. And that way they go, oh, if Jock gets hit by a bus tomorrow, Renato can still take it. And we've proven that we can have additional courses or additional ways of delivering this product without just relying on Jock. And that was one of the things we had to do because the first offer I got was about a year and a half ago. Uh, December of 2021, I had an offer and that offer was at around $12 million. Um, and ultimately I turned it down because I didn't think it was enough money. And um, at the time I, you know, I talked to them, they said, we think you're a great fit for us, blah, blah, blah. Um, but the reason why your offer is so little, because that one was, I think at the time was like a four or five X offer. Um, and they said, well, the reason that the offer is so little is all your courses are you. And so if you get hit by a bus, we're screwed, right? Uh, so that's risky. And number two is you don't anything proprietary. Everything you have is just your content, but you're using off-the-shelf software for all of your automations. I was using Zapier and you know Keep for my emailing and Thinkific for my LMS. And there's nothing that I owned as proprietary tech. And so they said, well, if you had proprietary tech, we can give you a higher rating, right? If you have more instructors and a repeatable business model, we can give you a higher rating. And so from the time that we talked about that to the time I got this new offer was about a year. And during that time, I hired a development team. We're building our own LMS. We built our own practice exams. We built all of our own automations. We've got a lot of our own tech now where we only have about three products that we still use that software off the shelf and everything else is stuff we've developed ourselves. And so that gives us a unique place in the marketplace because they're now not just buying me, but they're buying my development team that knows what they're doing and they're buying the software that we've built, right? And then the second piece is I brought in other instructors. So last year I hired two instructors. So there's now three of us, um, or at that point there was three of us. I hired two more again, right before the acquisition. So by the time they bought us, I have five instructors as W2s on payroll, plus about another four or five that I use as contractors. And we've shown that I can create a course and I can take anybody. Like I could say, Hey, John, John's really smart on business analysis, for instance, let's do a course together 
half with Jason, half with John, and that course will sell just as well as a Jason course. And by doing that, I've now proven that the business is expandable and they can pour gas onto the fi- uh, gas onto the fire to sell even faster by putting in marketing dollars, hiring new instructors, hiring more production team. Because as somebody who's going to buy your company from the outside, what they're thinking is, what can I bring to your company to take you from where you are today to 2x, 3x, 4x, or 5x of that over the next five years, right? That's their whole game is if you're doing a million a year, their goal is that in five years, you should be at least 5 million a year, right? And to do that, they need to know that what you're doing is already working and you're just cash limited. For instance, you know, in Jock's business, I know you use uh, ads a lot, right? And you might be spending, let's say, I don't know, $100,000 a month on ads. If I gave you $500,000 a month on ads, could you 5X your sales? Well, maybe, maybe not. You may run out of people who need piano lessons, right? But those are the kind of things they look at is, in my case, I was not doing any ads. I have done no SEO. I've done no ads. All of my sales are coming from either people who found me on Udemy or people who found me from Facebook groups or Discord groups or Reddit groups because people just talk about my product because they've had success with it. And so they saw that and they're like, wow, you guys have done this whole business and yet you haven't done any advertising. In my seven years I've been in business, I have spent a total of $50,000 on ads. Uh, in total. And that was mostly done two years ago during the pandemic, because at that time, a lot of people were going online and looking for courses that hadn't done it before. And we wanted to capture those eyeballs. So we did that for about nine months. Uh, I really didn't make a good go of it because uh, I didn't know what I'm doing in, in the marketing and ad space. And I used a couple of different contractors and I felt like, like honestly, I got taken advantage of by them because they they promise a lot and they don't deliver. Um, and that's okay. That happens. Um, it's things we learn in, in business. Uh, but I'll tell you, like one of the things that the acquisition firm told me uh, that they valued in our business was the fact that we did all this organically. And they're like, well, we know how to do SEO. We know how to do marketing. We already do that with other portfolio companies. And they're, you know, now they've taken over, they brought in a team that is doing marketing and SEO. They're bringing in a team that does B2B sales and all those things where they saw as growth areas. And I saw them as growth areas too. I was just afraid to invest in them because it would be my money on the table as opposed to their money on the table. Uh, If you're going to spend $100,000 in ads and none of that comes back, like I'd cry a little bit over that. I'm sure you guys would too. Uh, When I hire a new instructor, it's $100,000 to $120,000 a year to pay that guy uh, or girl. In my case, they're all guys uh, right now. But instructors aren't cheap, right? And so even you know, if I wanted to expand into a bunch of new product lines that's requiring me to hire five new instructors, that's half a million dollars in salary a year that I'd be taking on. Um, in my business model, I had the room to do that, but it was something that I was growing much slower than I could because it was my money and every dollar I was spending was money I wasn't putting in my own pocket to take home and invest in other places too. And so as you start thinking about these things, these are the kind of reasons why people end up selling. Um, I'll tell you the other reason why I ended up selling at the end of the day was because I was really worried about my team. Um, And everybody feels differently about this. I know a lot of corporate America does not value their team, even though we talk about valuing our team all the time. Um, But I see a lot in corporate America was like, hey, you know what? If we close down tomorrow, so be it. Nobody cares, right? And when I started the company, I didn't have an exit plan, right? Because this was supposed to be my... And so I wanted to get a real job when I was done. And by doing that, you know, I didn't plan for what do I do if I was ever going to sell? Or what would I do if I was ever going to shut down? And really my wife and I were just like, we're going to do this for five, 10, 15 years, make some money, and then we'll just turn off the lights and go home, right? Well, as it became significant and we started you know, getting significant revenue, is like, oh, well, be kind of stupid to turn off the lights and uh, on that kind of revenue. We, should, we now have value to sell. So that was one thing. Second thing was I now had 20 plus people on my team between contractors and employees. And if I shut down, or let's say Jock shuts down piano in 21 days tomorrow, well, guess what? Renato's out of a job, right? And that sucks for him. Um, and, and so, you know, the way I look at it as a business owner is I have a responsibility to my team. 
And I was worried if I got hit by a bus, if I got disinterested, if I got divorced, if I died, if I didn't want to do this anymore, all those are things that I was like, my team is going to be screwed because that is their livelihood. And so one of the reasons I was happy about selling was that I know that this brand will now live on and those people still have a job moving forward. Uh, and of course, I get a nice big paycheck up front, which is always nice too. Um, so yeah, so those are kind of the things that, you know, kind of starting out with uh, as we start the discussion. Uh, that being said, I'm going to open up questions to anything you guys want to talk about. And um, I will, um, that way I can hit the areas that you care about. And then I'll give you a couple of things. Um, the other thing I told Jock before this is that, you know, in addition to selling this company, I have started another company. Uh, and that company I am building from the ground up with the idea of selling it one day. And so the things I'm doing in that company are things based on lessons learned I learned from my other company that I sold and where the problems lie and where you want to make sure you're doing things if you have the intention of selling one day. So we could talk about that as well. Um, but I do see there's a question in chat. So I guess I'll take that one first unless... Uh, you want to do something else first, John? Uh, John. No, that's perfect. Let's let's you use the raise your hand function in Zoom so we uh, don't talk over each other. I've got several questions listed myself that I'll try to intersperse between you guys' questions. Um, but if you've got something, use that. James, you, you put something in the chat, but I'd love for you to verbalize it if you don't mind. Uh, no, no problem. Um, you guys can hear me okay? Yes. Um, so... I can't relate to everything about this, but I, but it's fantastic, Jason. Congrats! And I was just wondering, in a general way, um, you you learn a lot about the future of online learning, uh, if through nothing else than through the eagerness of these people showing their cards, like "Oh my God, give us your thing," because yep. and, and presumably these people like have a clear, more clear vision. They spend all their time thinking about this. So what did you learn that could help any of us with our marketing messages right, right now at the moment, no matter how humble our thing is? Yeah, definitely. So, you know, when I look at it, um, the market in general for e-learning is booming, right? Um, that being said, there's a lot of places that are struggling right now. Uh, I don't know how closely you all look at the market, but I, I look at a lot of the different stuff and Pluralsight, for instance, which is one of the big e-learning platforms, who's a big competitor for Udemy. They have had declining sales quarter after quarter. They just laid off like, I think, 30%, 40% of their staff. Um, they've done a lot of acquisitions over the last two or three years during the pandemic. And they, I think, honestly, they were paid for a lot of things. And so it's it's causing a struggle for them. So there is an eager market for people buying up things um, as far as other companies that they can scale and expand. Um, and this goes into when you're picking the company that's going to acquire you or who you're going to allow yourself to be sold to. Um, not everything comes down to money. When we looked at it, there was three companies that came to us. One was not a good cultural fit at all. And I basically just told them, it doesn't matter what you pay me. We're not going to sell to you. Like I, I'm just not going to do it. And then the other two was the one I ended up selling to and another one. And the one I ended up selling to was not the highest offer. Um, the other one was, but they were a better cultural fit. And the reason is these two companies had a different philosophy. The company that bought us is a people first organization, uh, that they actually invest into the businesses they buy. They're not looking to just take on your business and get your cash out. They're looking at putting money into your business and growing it either in terms of instructors, marketing, whatever, to 2x, 3x, 4x, 5x your business, and that's where they make their money. The other company was much more focused on every penny I was spending. And, oh, you spent you know $10,000 on Facebook ads. Could you have gotten away with only 8,000? Or you spent you know uh, $10,000 a year on active campaign. Can we move you to uh, you know I don't know MailChimp for 5,000 and save yourself some money? They're very much about cost cutting. And that didn't feel like a good fit for me because I did things like profit sharing for my team. We pay for health benefits for my team and a lot of things that are very costly on the labor side, but I know it gives us a good uh, culture and environment. And the company we sold to was support 
supportive of all those things. The other one who was offering me more money was actually worse for my team and worse for my students. And so I ended up not selling to them. That being said, as far as the future of, e, uh, of online learning and e-learning, it fluctuates all the time. One of the biggest things that scares me right now in the e-learning market as I look out ahead is how easy it is to create new content. Uh, you know, Jock, I know you've talked about this on your podcast before, but when you started doing your first course for piano in 21 days, like there was no Kajabi out there, right? If you wanted to make a website to sell courses, you had to get a membership plugin if you were lucky or code it yourself. And then you had to have all these things to build this LMS type of system to be able to deliver this content. Nowadays, it's really easy, right? And the bar is so easy. Any of us can go in Kajabi sign up with our credit card and put out our first course by tomorrow if we wanted to, including email campaigns, landing pages, and everything else. Um, that's great. And it makes it easy. The problem is it also is really easy for a competitor to come in. Uh, I can tell you the three guys that I mentioned earlier in my space, they didn't see me coming out anywhere because I literally just threw up my courses over a weekend. Uh, my first course, I started stealing market share from like, what the hell is this? And after a year, uh, I was like number one on several of the courses. And by three years, I was number one on every course I taught. And the guy who was number one for the last 10 years is now number two and number three. Um, and so the the bar being lowered in terms of difficulty is a thing that we all need to think about. What is our competitive advantage and how do we keep our place? Um, you know, Josh got piano in 21 days. There's nothing that stops me from creating piano in 17 days, right? And I'm like, look, I'm, I'm four days faster. You guys should buy from me, right? Um, but that's the challenge is that anybody can do that right now because it is so much easier than it was 10, 15 years ago when, when it came to making courses. Um, being able to record your screen, record yourself, doing the audio quality, editing, all that stuff is so easy these days with things like Descript and, and editing by text instead of having to do it by audio form and all that kind of stuff. Um, so that is one of the things I worry about, right? Second thing I really worry about is AI. And uh, for those of you who use AI, it's a great tool if you know what you're doing. I use it a lot. I use ChatGPT extensively when I'm doing stuff and creating pro <coughs> excuse me, creating products. The one thing I would tell you is you need to understand the limitations of ChatGPT in terms of its technical ability, as well as the limitations from your ability to copyright the stuff you're creating from ChatGPT. If I just go into ChatGPT and say, write me a script for this lesson in my course, and then I take that and I film it word for word, that is not copyrightable. You did not create that. And that is going to be considered still the copyright or non-copyrightableness of OpenAI. And the reason for that is they actually went out and scraped the entire internet and they learned from blogs like Jock's or, or John's or anybody else's, and then they're creating their scripts based on that. And so you could be actually using content that is copyrighted and you don't even know it because ChatGPT doesn't tell you that. So if you are using something like ChatGPT, I highly recommend whatever you take, you scramble that up, you put your own thought to it, Use it as a first draft, that's fine, but do not record it as written because you are going to shoot yourself in the foot by doing that, either by getting yourself uh, subject to a, a copyright infringement lawsuit if you're using the same words somebody else did, or uh, which would be the worst part, or just you can't copyright it yourself. And if somebody else decides to take your course and film it as piano in 19 days, uh, there's nothing you could do about it because you didn't have the copyright to begin with, right? So those are two things I, I would think about there as we talk about the future of online learning. The other thing is that things seem to fluctuate between uh, on-demand versus instructor-led. A lot of students like instructor-led, a lot of students like on-demand training. I only do on-demand training. Most of the other companies in the portfolio I'm in, they all do instructor-led training. And we are basically on opposite sides of the spectrum. Uh, that being said, they're charging 3000 for a course. I'm charging 300 for a course because live instructors cost more money and they have to do it every single week. Um, and so knowing your business and your business model is important. And then the other thing I would say is when you're smaller, there's things you can do that the bigger guys can't. And this is one of the things I did that really helped me get my business going when I was 
young and starting out in 2017, um, I was in all the different Facebook groups, groups and Reddit groups for my topics. And so if somebody was like, hey, I'm planning on taking the Security Plus, I've got a question on how encryption works, I would jump in there and be like, hey, here's how you how encryption works, blah, blah, blah. And oh, by the way, here's a video on YouTube that I have explaining this. And in that video, it would say, you know, you could buy the full course, blah, 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 right? And so that was the way I was grabbing students. And I could do, you know, kind of that guerrilla marketing, that hand-to-hand combat. You could do that when you're small. When you're big, it's hard to do that, right? Uh, I've got a million students. There's no way I can spend 15 minutes with a student on the phone nowadays. In the old days, somebody would be like, hey, do you have 15 minutes to give me some career coaching? I'd be like, sure, why not? Let's jump on a call. And then that person becomes a diehard fan and will preach your name all over the internet. And that drives a lot of sales back. So that's one of the things I did when I was young and small that worked. Now that I'm larger, I don't have the ability to do that. And that's one of the ways that as a small person, you're more agile and can can really attack those things and get more market share. Um, and then the final thing with e-learning is make your courses designed towards the outcome. I know Jock talks about this all the time. Uh, you're not selling how to play piano. You're selling the ability to play songs for your friends and put a smile on their face, right? Or whatever that thing is, right? It's not the technical thing of what you're doing, right? I'm not selling a certification. I'm selling the hope that you're going to get a better job making more money to support your family, right? That's that's what I'm selling, right? And so think about that in your marketing. It's the the outcome they want, not the thing they're doing to get there, right? Um, I buy a car to get from point A to point B. Um, I can buy a lot of different cars to do that. And that can be based on features, function, price, or whatever. The reason I drive the car I do is because it's more comfortable and it drives itself on the highway. So I don't have to think half the time when I'm driving because uh, I drive a Tesla and I put it on autopilot mode and it drives me down the street, right? Um, and for me, that was the selling feature. People are like, oh, it's an electric car. I'm like, I don't care that it's electric. I care that it drove itself. That's why I bought the stupid car, right? Um, that's the outcome I wanted was to free up my mind so I could be doing other things while driving, which again, you should do other things while driving, but you know what I mean. Um, and, and the same thing with your courses, right? It's not what you're selling. It's not there's a 10 our course on this it's the outcome they want to achieve what do you think james was that thorough enough of an answer for you uh that, that was a, a command performance thank you jason <laughs> and i know it went on 17 sidetracks but eventually i think i got back to your question <laughs> no, that, was, that was awesome you made my question seem a lot smarter thank you so I'm going to jump in with one of my questions here uh i would love to hear more about your now that now that the acquisition has taken place like you're not just wiping your hands and 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 walking away, like part of the agreement is that you have to stay on. What What is that role for how long and so on? That is a great question, right? So this is one of those things that really is up to you in your negotiations of how do you see yourself as you move forward. Um, for any of you who are thinking about selling your business one day, a book you have to get, either Audible or the paperback, is called Built to Sell. Uh, Built to Sell is an amazing book that really walks you through the whole thing. It's done in a story-like manner where essentially they're talking about a company that was a small advertising firm and they were doing a little bit of everything and they were a service-based business. And if you're a service-based business, you're going to be lucky to get a one or a two X multiple. And they basically throughout the book took this guy from a service-based business to becoming a productized business focused solely on developing logos, which was the one thing they were great at. And they took this business from a million a year to 5 million a year. And they ended up selling the business and going through what the negotiations look like and going through a broker and all the things you should be looking out for. And one of the things they always bring up in this book is the idea of the earnout. And uh, have you guys ever heard of the term earnout? Is that a familiar term to anybody? A couple people? Okay. So some people are saying no, so I'm going to explain it. So what an earnout is, is when you make a deal for selling your business, let's say I'm going to buy Jock's company for $10 million. Well, right now, Jock is the piano guy. I'm not the piano guy. I don't know how to play piano. I'm trying to learn. I have Jock's course, but I'm not there yet. And so I couldn't take it over and become piano in 21 days version seven. I need Jock. So I'd say, okay, Jock, I'm going to buy your business. I'm going to pay you $10 million for it, but 
I want you to stay on for two years. Now, during those two years, you're going to be a W-2 employee. I'm going to pay you. I'm going to give you salary. I'm going to give you benefits. And we'll negotiate a part of his, of this deal is what his salary is going to be. I could pay him 20000 a year. I could pay him 200000 a year. Depends on what he's willing to take, right? And so we'll make that negotiation and say, okay, for the next two years, you're going to stay with this business. And for the next two years, I want you to stay here and be the instructor, the face. I want you to keep doing the podcast. I want you to still do your YouTube channels, all the things I want him to do as an employee. And he'll agree to that for a certain amount of money. Now, the way this earnout works is that if I'm buying him for 10 million, let's say I do an 80-20 split. At close, the day he signs the contract and I now own piano in 21 days, he's going to get a check for 80% or $8 million. The other 2 million is being held back for the end of this earnout period. Now, the earnout period is in this case, we're saying two years, I want him to work for me. Now, as we're doing this negotiation, Jock's going to tell me why he's selling in the first place. It may be that he's now 60 years old and he wants to retire and go to a beach and, and not work anymore. That is one reason people get out. In fact, most of the portfolio companies that are in the portfolio I'm in, I'm the youngest company. Most of the companies were around for 20 or 25 years before they got bought. And so most of their founders are now 50, 55, 60, 65. And like, I want to go to the beach. I'm done with this, right? And so they're selling it with the hopes of somebody's going to come over and take over their business and they're getting a cash out. I'm I'm a fairly young guy. I'm only 43. I'm not done working yet. So I'm happy to stay on with the business for a while. And I'm staying there as a lead instructor. So in this case, where I have Jock's uh, you know, deal, we split it up $10 million, $8 million up front, $2 million at the end. And we'll tie that earn out to performance that he is able to help us with. If he stays on as the CEO, because I don't want to run this business, I just want to own the business. I could say, Jock, you're going to stay on as CEO. I'm going to pay you $200,000 a year. And over the next two years, I expect that we're going to do whatever the number is based on your forecast, right? He may have said that when he sold me the company, this year I did $2 million in gross revenue. Next year, I'm going to do three. The year after that, I'm going to do five. And so I'd say, okay, I'm going to buy you. I'm going to give you 80% up front, 20% as an earnout. And if in the next two years, you do hit those numbers that you said, which was $3 million for this year and $5 million for next year, $8 million total gross, then I will give you another $2 million. If you are less than $8 million, you get nothing. If you're more than 8 million, there's usually like a little range, like between eight and 10, you'll get, you know, the 2 million. And if you get up to 10, then maybe you get like 3 million or something like that, but that's all negotiable in your deal. But essentially this is the carrot, right? And they want to hold Jock on. Now Jock can quit anytime. If he signs today, he can still quit. But if he quits before that two years is up, he's giving up that 20%, right? Um, but this is also something you can use in your negotiations, right? You can have more upfront, less as an earnout. You can have all upfront and no earnout. Or what I ended up doing was I was really confident in my numbers. And when we got down to negotiation, I told them, hey, I think we're off by a couple of million dollars on price. I want a couple million dollars more. And originally they had offered me an 80-20 deal. And I said, look, I'm really confident in my numbers that I'll go down to a 50-50. You give me half up front and half as an earnout over two years. And in exchange for that, because I'm now taking the risk that we're going to hit the numbers, if I do hit my numbers, I want this number. And so you know, I was able to get it up you know, two, three, four, five, six million dollars more in value by making that kind of a trade-off. Because what I did was I de-risked it for them as the buyers. Because the buyer is thinking, hey, Jock says he's going to do eight million, but what if he only does five? Why would I give him the whole price for that? I should give him less because he's not hitting the numbers I bought it based on. And so that's one of the things you can do as part of that earnout. And so um, that's one of the things to keep in mind too, as part of your thing is, are you willing to take more of the risk or do you want them to take more of the risk? And if you're one of those people who's like, I'm 70 years old, I just want to hit the beach. I don't want to work anymore. I just want to sign the paperwork, do a 90 day transition and I'm out the door. I want hundred percent of the money up front. There are companies that will do that, but you're going to get less than if you stay on and help them with that transition and help them with that growth. So in my case, I ended up doing a 50, 50 deal, uh, where I got 
less money up front, and I'm going to get more in two years if we hit our numbers. And right now we are on track to hit our numbers. And that is the numbers that they're using was the numbers I gave them in the forecast of if I kept running the business the way I was running it the last five years, this is what our numbers would be. And in addition to that, they're giving me salespeople. They're giving me marketing dollars. They're doing all that stuff that helps us build even more. So if we don't hit our numbers, there's something really wrong, right? And that's why I was willing to take that type of a chance. So those are the things you can think about. The other thing, uh, I think the other part of your question, Jacques, that I didn't cover yet was what does the transition look like? And what does it look like from the time you get an offer to the time you close? And then from the close to where you are today. And right now we closed on May 12th. Uh, at the time I'm talking, it's now June 29th. So we've been closed for about six weeks at this point. So I can talk up to that point and then what the plan is for the rest of the way going forward. So we started talking with this company back in November, December. We finally got to a number that we were happy with in March. And again, I kind of slow rolled them on that because we were pitching them against two other players that were also interested in buying us. And I was still trying to decide if I wanted to end up selling at all because I didn't need to sell. And I was thinking I might, I might sell in a couple of years, but I wasn't necessarily ready to sell yet. So anyway, once we decide on the number, uh, that goes through what's called an IOI which is an intention or indicator of interest, I think is what it stands for. It's essentially a two-page letter that says, hey, you know, John, I'm interested in buying your company. As I understand it, your company made X in dollars last year, or we'll use the example of Jock's company again, right? You made $2 million in revenue last year. You made a million dollars in profit. Based on that, I'm prepared to offer you a 80-20 deal where I'm going to pay you $10 million uh, and I'll give you $8 million right now and I'll give you $2 million at the end of two years. And I expect you to stay on with the company as the CEO and the lead instructor, continue to run this thing for us. Um, and you know, we want you to hit at least $10 million in revenue over the next two years. And if you do, we'll give you that $2 million bonus, right? That's kind of lays out the basic terms. Now, none of that is legally binding yet, but it's just the, the shot across the bow for lack of a better term, right? It's what do you think you're willing to accept and see if you guys get into the, into a close range. Now, if I said 10 and he's like, no, I'm not doing it for less than 20, then we can go back and forth. And I might say, well, I can do 15. He goes, nope, I need 20. I'm like, I can't get to 20. 15 is the best I can do. He might say, nope, and walks away. Or he might say, you know what? Okay, I'll do 15, but I want this, this, and this, or I want this higher salary or whatever it is. Or Jason, you didn't value my business, right? Because you weren't thinking about all the one-on-one coaching I do as part of OCG, um, you know, or it may have been that he included all of that in one company, which happens a lot because it's all under the Hopkins media brand, isn't it, Jock? That's correct. Yes. Yeah. So if I want to buy piano in 21 days right now, I don't care about OCG coaching. That's not my business. I don't want that. I just want piano. Right. But if I look at his books, it's going to say he's making 2 million a year and half of that might be OCG coaching. I don't know. Right. And so as we get into due diligence, he might go, you know, I really love OCG coaching and it really doesn't have anything to do with piano business. So I want to spin that off and I'm going to own OCG coaching as a new brand and I'll sell piano to you, Jason, right? And we can make that negotiation and that will affect all the numbers too. But all of that gets discussed in this IOI. Once we get to someplace where we're pretty happy, we both have said, yep, we think we're in, we're, we're in shooting distance of each other. Then we can move into what's called the LOI. And the LOI is where you actually put the exact numbers down. Getting to that LOI from the IOI is usually about a month process. And during that time, you're going to be giving them access to your books. They're going to see how many sales you have, who your biggest customers are. They're going to want to see who's your top 15 customers, uh, who's your lowest 15 customers. What is your rate of people rebuying if you're in a business where people rebuy? For example, I have 42 courses. How many students buy more than three courses from me? They want to know that number, right? Because part of the business model is, can I get repeat buyers? Or if I'm in Jock's case, he only has one course. So 
you know, it's all about how many people go to his website out of those number of people, how many go into the webinar, how many of the webinar will actually buy, how many who buy will tell their friends and get a referral. And if he knows all those numbers, that's going to make it really easy for him to justify why he's worth more or less. And so we go through all that and we go back and forth and we agree on a number, we agree on a timeline, and then the lawyers start getting involved, writing up the exact contract. And once that's done uh, for us, that took 52 days from LOI to closing. Uh, which is really, really fast. Most companies do it between 90 and 180 days. It can be three to six months. And during that time, they're bringing in their lawyers and their accountants, and they're going through all your books in detail. And they're trying to figure out exactly how much does it cost for you to support a single student? Uh, and as you're trying to figure out, you know, what is, if I have one student versus a hundred versus a thousand versus a million, what is my incremental cost going up? And some of those are really easy. For instance, we give a textbook with each course. So I know that's $69 per course, but some are really hard. Like, how much of my hosting bills associated for one student? How much of my student support analyst who makes $40,000 a year is supported by one student, right? And, and trying to get those numbers down, it, it takes a lot of time to get all that done. And the more complicated your business, the longer that due diligence period can be. Now, once you get through all that due diligence, you guys sign the papers, you guys go through, you sign the documents. The same day you sign, there's money in your account. I look at my bank account and boom, there's millions of dollars. I'm like, woo, this is awesome. Um, and then the real fun begins because now you have transition, right? And for the next 90 days, you're going to be transitioning over your company to your new company. In our case, we did an asset purchase agreement, which meant they weren't buying my company. They were buying my intellectual property. They bought all my IP. They bought all my content. They bought my name and my likeness in terms of cybersecurity training stuff. I have a non-compete. I can't go work for Jock and create cybersecurity in 21 days. That's not allowed. Um, I can go teach a piano course if I wanted to, because that's not in my scope. Um, and there's certain things we carved out that I was allowed to do and certain things that I gave up and I wasn't going to do. One of my other businesses is also in the cybersecurity space. And so we had to clearly identify, these are the things that Jason will be able to do in his new business. These are the things that he will not do because it would be competing with his old company, Dion Training. And here's the things that the two of us are going to be doing together in that new business because I started that business as a collaboration with Dion Training and they saw the value in that. And so they wanted to carry on that, that partnership and collaboration. So I still own part of my business from that company. I own hundred. I own that company, but I don't own Dion Training anymore, but they still do work together. And then like the building that Dion Training is in, I own that with my real estate company called Dion Solutions. So they're actually paying me rent to rent out the studio space that they're using for the next three years until they move to another building or they re-up their contract again. Um, but there's things like that that you can do as you build those things out. Now, as far as the transition, right? Um, what is your role going to be after you sell? This is something you have to decide on and they're going to have some opinions on that. You're going to have some opinions on that. I will tell you for me, one of the reasons I was open to selling is because I did not want to be the CEO anymore. I didn't want to have to deal with payroll. I didn't want to deal with finances. I don't want to deal with inventory. I want to go back to doing what I loved, which was teaching. And I found that over the last three to four years, I have done much less teaching than I do everything else I do, right? And some people don't really like the teaching part of the business and they much prefer the, the business side. Uh, and so they get more of a, a, a model like Jock does where I think what once every year or two, you refilm your course. And other than that, you're pretty much doing business stuff, not teaching stuff, at least on the piano side. Is, is that accurate, Jock? Yeah, look, the, I really went all in on the last version because I don't really want to record it ever again. So not one, one uh, every one or two years. Like, hopefully this is the last version. It's in 4K. I've got all the camera angles. It's the, by far the best curriculum I've ever done. So hopefully that's the last go of it because I would rather, much rather be on calls like this. Yeah. And see, I love the teaching part. Like I love working with students. I love teaching content. I like making the videos. And I was doing a lot less of that and a lot more of the business side. So one of the things I told this company was, look, if you're going to buy us, I'm not coming on as your CEO. Like I'll do it for six months, 
But within six months, you better find somebody and hire somebody. And I will trans I'll transition to them and I will teach them. And I told them, like, honestly, if I don't sell to you, I'm going out and hiring a CEO because I'm tired of this. Um, and I already have a COO uh, who was running the daily business, but even the CEO level stuff, I just didn't want to do anymore. Um, and so as part of that process, they said, great. We love that you want us to bring in a CEO because that means we can control the person and we can have all the control over the growth. And I'm like, good, because I, you know. I got it to this level. I don't know if I can get it to the next level, right? Like what got us here won't get us there. Um, I got us from zero to 10,000, 10,000 to 100,000 a month, 100,000 to a couple million dollars a year. But I don't know if I'm the guy to get us to 50 million a year or 100 million a year or a billion a year, right? And our company has the ability to do that. I just don't think I'm the CEO for that. So they brought out three different CEOs that they liked, um, all extremely talented individuals. Uh, one came from Wharton School of Business. One came from Harvard and Stanford, and another one came from Northwestern. Uh, they asked me who I liked, who I didn't like from a personality perspective and who could learn. Um, I basically ranked them from one, two, and three. For me, one and two were like within a percent of each other, and number three was down here. Um, and so ultimately, they said, you know, who do you want? And I said, well, my number one is this person. My number two is this person. Honestly, I'll take either of those two. Number three, I really don't like her. I don't want her. She's not the one. I, I, I don't think we'll work well together. And so they came back and said, well, based on our assessment, we think your number two should be number one and our number one should be number two. If you don't have any hard feelings, we'd like to hire that way. I said, great, I'm good with that. But if I, they basically gave me veto power. I could have said, no, I want my number one and they would have hired her anyway. Um, but ultimately we ended up hiring the person who had a Stanford MBA, a master of policy administration from Harvard, Super, super smart individual, uh, worked for Goldman Sachs for the last eight or nine years, running their private equity firm and a lot of their their portfolio companies. Um, and she just brings up a wealth of experience that I don't have. And um, basically, we closed on the 12th, about a week later, uh, the following Monday. So about seven days later, she joined the team. Um, and her and I have been working side by side ever since as we've been working on getting all the revenue uh, switch over to the new bank accounts, all the HR and the payroll switched over, getting her up to speed on our business to business sales and our business to consumer sales and all the stuff that we do on a daily basis. And the intent is that within 90 days, she will have everything and she will now be the CEO and I will step back and let her run things completely. And she's already running, I'd say about 80% of the stuff over the last six weeks. So um, that's kind of what the transition looks like. Um, and I'll tell you, it's probably a lot scarier for my employees, um, because, you know, they really didn't know this was happening until a week before we were going to sell. Cause I didn't want to get their hopes up that we were going to sell, um, and that they were going to get a closing bonus and things like that. If it wasn't going to happen, or I didn't want to freak them out if it wasn't going to happen. And so I really, the only people who really knew it was happening at the time was me, my COO and my CTO, because we were the ones who had to be involved during all the due diligence discussions. Um, because when they wanted numbers on how fast are we selling vouchers or how many courses are we selling and all those kind of things, those are all things that we really needed to have uh, from um, from those people instead of me having to do it all because that due diligence period is a lot of work. And so they helped me out with a lot of that. So they were aware of it. Uh, and I incentivized them to help me get through it and sell so that if I sold, they were getting a chunk of the money as well. And ultimately at the sale, I took about a half a million dollars and split that up amongst my team. Um, and so even my folks like in the Philippines and India and Egypt, they all got a really, really nice one-time success bonus for us having closed uh, on the deal. Um, and that was just, again, nothing you have to do, but something I wanted to do because I wouldn't have been there without the team. Um, and then the other thing is that also decreases my taxable load, right? Because that half a million dollars came out 
before I pay taxes on it because they're paying taxes on their half too. And it's good for them because they're getting lots of cash in their pocket. So I think that answers your question, Jock. I know it was a long, long roundabout way of answering it though. <laughs> More than answers it. Thank you so much. That's really, really incredible. And and just love to hear the the thought process behind how you arrived at that, right? So, you know, if I... I was thinking, you know, you'd stay on for two years and maybe just like a really slow transition out as CEO over a two-year period. But like, you've basically already done that and you are trying to live in the place that you want to be living within the company, at least for, you know, until the until the earnout, right? Exactly. And all those things are fully negotiable of how long this is going to take. I know some people say, you know what, during the earnout period, I want to stay a CEO because that earnout period for me is 50% of the income. Uh, of my my sale comes in the earnout period. So that's why they gave me a lot of control over, do you want to stay as CEO for the next two years or do you want us to bring somebody in? And if we bring somebody in, do you want to have a say in who that is? And I said, I'm okay with you replacing me because you'll probably have somebody who's smarter than me and that's good. Uh, but I do want to say because my money is tied up with them too. And then the other thing that we made sure was when they hired the CEO, her incentives align with my incentives. And what I mean by that is, you know, if you've never hired a CEO, most CEOs, their compensation is not based on their salary. It's usually tied to profitability, profit margins, gross revenue, or net profit. And so, you know, they may get 20% of their pay as a salary, like you're going to get 50,000 a year, but their actual compensation is probably two, three, 400,000 because it's tied as a percentage of profits. And so my earnout was based on my gross revenue number. Her targets, um, we had to make sure excuse me, uh, we had to make sure with the company that when they hired her, they made her targets align with my targets. And what I mean by that is if they told her, your goal is to get to $10 million in profit per year, right? For your to get, for you to get your burn, bonus. But my goal is $20 million in gross revenue. For me to hit my goal, she has to have a 50% profit margin, right? And, and so, because 100 or 10 million times two gets you to, to 20, right? So I wanted to make sure that since they were grading me on gross revenue, I wanted her graded on gross revenue too. That way we're both in alignment and we're both running the same direction. Similarly, they were really happy about her being the CEO because in her contract, they have a thing on the profit margin she has to have, whether that's 20%, 40%, 60%, whatever that number is. I don't have a profit margin cap on my earnout. My earnout is based solely on do we grossly hit those numbers? If we sell, I don't know, I'm just throwing a number here, $20 million in product over the next two years, then Jason gets his big bonus, right? Um, but for her, they need to sell 20 million and she needs to hit at least a 25% profit margin or whatever it is. And that's how they control that I don't just go out and spend a billion dollars on Facebook ads to get $20 million in sales. Because if I was a CEO, I could have done that based on my earnout, my agreement. And so those things all matter as you're negotiating it and your lawyers will make sure that you're on the right side and that everything is lined up. And that's why your lawyers and your accountants and your, your brokers are gonna be so helpful during this process. Lars, you have the floor. Uh, number one, Jason, you are such an inspiration. I mean, the level of knowledge that you're sharing here now that you, I mean, I can't imagine what kind of processor processor was installed in your brain because it's running so fast and it's so full of just, you know, this is a treasure box for all of us. So thank you for doing this. I have, I have a few questions and I think, um, I think, uh, I'm trying to understand like the buyer's perspective, not because, I mean, I understand I yeah. want to buy your business, but I'm trying to just understand where this online business world is going. I mean, I started less than a year ago. Uh, I've been in the music business for many years. This yeah. is all new to me. And I've seen the music business change so much. Um, and 
uh, when it comes to these buyers, number one, what kind of companies are buying? That's question number one. Yep. And how important do you think like the forecast for the online business world was to them, like to go in and invest? Oh, big time. Yeah. 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 So okay. the, the way that these deals work is most of these deals are going to be done by private equity firms. And you probably heard that term uh, on CNBC and other places when we talk about yeah. private equity and all this large sums of money. Essentially what they are is if you think about a mutual fund where you go and buy all of the you know 100 best tech stocks, right? Those are public and everybody can buy and sell those. But with these private equity firms, they go to people who have a lot of money and they're looking to get better than stock market rates or better than bond or loan rates. And so they will invest in these companies. And these companies, if they're good at what they do, they buy up a bunch of these little firms and they put them together into this big conglomerate that makes them a lot of money. So the company that ended up buying us uh, is named Excel Learning, A-X-C-E-L. And you can see that if you just Google Dion training uh, acquisition, there's articles out there that talk about that. And they are owned by a larger company, which is known as Alpine X. And they're a Silicon Valley venture capital firm that does private equity and acquisition. So in the larger firm, they have about 200, 250 companies. The smaller portfolio that we're in is called Excel Learning. And we were the sixth company and they just acquired a seventh one like three weeks after us. Um, and usually they'll, they'll build let, these companies just, up just to- Because like, yep. me, sorry, but um, to me, that's a super healthy signal for the business. Yes. That, that, that type of companies are going in to invest in an e- like um, e-learning business, yep. so like yours, yep. that's a and, super and the big company. That we should. It's it's not know. just e-learning companies though. Some of their stuff they have portfolios that are consumer brands. Uh, for instance, when we were in talks, they sent me a a goodie bag with stuff in it from all their other portfolio companies, and one of them was like dog treats because uh, they knew I had dogs. And like here, your dogs will like these bones and these stuffed animals from this company that we own. And here's this thing for your wife that's some makeup because we own this other company. And like just to give you kind of a feel of the different companies they have, and each of these are put into these little pods. Our pod happens to be the e-learning pod, and they have right now seven companies in there, and they've been around for about a year and a half, two years uh, inside this larger company. Um, now, what they see as being valuable is um, A, content. Uh, so if you're in an area that they need content in, they're interested in buying. Uh, B, uh, your business model. And if you have a unique business model that they're not already leveraging and it's synergistic with other things, then they like that. So in our case, we sell certification exams and we do on-demand training. They have all their other companies. They're all cyber folks, IT folks, uh, service management folks, all that kind of stuff with instructor-led training. And they have a lot of contracts with B2B, Fortune 500 companies. And they're all asking, hey, how can we get lower cost stuff? How can we get on-demand stuff? And like, oh, well, we now have Dion and we can do that for you, right? Because they, the reason they came to us is they kept hearing our name over and over in this space because we had a good brand identity. Um, as far as your other question, as far as, you know, why do they want to buy a company like us or a company like you? It's, they're trying to find a way to, Either A, find a business that's already heavily cash flowing and keep running it, and that way they can just get that cash flow out, or B, something they see that is not optimized yet that they can build on. Uh, and again, like I said, this company they've got uh, that bought us, they've got folks who do nothing but web dev all day long. They've got people who do nothing but marketing all day long, nothing but B2B all day long. And so they can go in and go, oh, Jason, you're not doing any B2B. You're doing 5% of your sales are B2B. We can get that to 50%. And, and by doing that, we can increase your revenues 2x. And they can do that because they already have those resources to bring in. And they know what they're doing because they've done it time and time again for other companies, right? So that's the value proposition on their side. Now, this brings up our side of it as the seller, right? Why would we want to sell if they see all that value 
right? Why wouldn't we just do it ourselves, right? And we could, right? There's nothing that would have stopped me from hiring my own CEO, hiring my own B2B person, um, hiring a marketing firm to start doing marketing and try to do all that kind of stuff for us. Um, but it comes down to, do you want to be in that business to grow it that way? Uh, do you want to keep it as a small lifestyle business? Or do you want to be able to cash out and create a liquidity event? And for me, uh, as I looked at my portfolio of things that I own between real estate and my businesses and my own personal stocks and things like that, my business and the value they were giving me for that business, it was probably 90% of my net worth, right? It, 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 and I, I, I've saved up quite a bit of money outside of my business too in, in real estate and stuff like that that I've bought and, and rent out. But at the end of the day, like my business has grown so much and it become this big, massive thing but it's like your house. Like if I told Jock right now his house was worth $20 million, it doesn't matter because he can't eat his house until he sells the house, right? Um, but instead, if I go, I'll give you $20 million. Now you can go move and buy yourself a new house. He could take that $20 million. He can go buy himself another house for a million dollars and do whatever he wants with the other 19 million, right? And it's the same kind of thing in my world that I was looking at. I was like, you know, I'm good staying and continuing to collect money every month or every year in my profits, or I can sell and get a very large upfront that I can now take and do other things with it, like my other business, like stocks, like real estate that I bought and things like that. So it diversified me. Um, and as I said before, you know, I don't think I'm the guy to get my company to 20 million a year or 50 million a year or hundred million a year. I'm really good with the small company and building it. Uh, I've done that several times and I've sold businesses in the past. Um, this is actually the second business that I've created and sold and I'm working on number two and number three and number four now. Um, but I, I think that for me, the excitement is building and getting to that, you know, five million a year revenue or something like that, and then selling it. And I think this brings up another point: is how big do you need to be before somebody's going to be interested in you to buy you? Um, your gross revenues need to be between five and ten. Your profits need to be between one and five million a year for people to start really getting interested. If you're below that, most of the good quality institutional buyers, you're too small; they're not going to want to buy you. The people who will come to you when you're smaller, when you're making a hundred, two hundred, three hundred thousand a year, because I had people come to me back then, they were offering two and three x revenue, which is like not worth it. I'm like, dude, I could just turn off the switch and collect checks for the next three years and and be no worse off. So I think if you're thinking about that, you want to sell, your goal needs to be to get yourself to five to ten million in annual revenue, top line and one to five in profit. And if you can get there, you now have a business that's sellable. And obviously the higher profit margin, the faster growth period, those are all going to give you higher revenue and models. For us, we were going up between 50 and 100% year over year for the last five years. So we had a very hockey shape type growth, which is why I was able to command a, a 8X revenue instead of a you know 4X or 5X revenue. Can I shoot my second question? My, my last question? I think sure. I'm just going to stop. Because that's... Um... Can you share which key things you're doing differently in your new business um, in terms of, I guess you want to get up to speed faster? Like in, yeah, you, definitely. Like your first time, how do you, how do you move into creating something new now in terms of getting up to speed faster, but also prepping for a potential sale in the future? What's what definitely. Are the different things you do? Yeah. So uh, this also ties into Chris's question in chat. So I'm going to read that and then I'll answer your question because I think they both go together. Uh, he said, you know, if you're comfortable saying what the new businesses you're creating to sell is, he'd be interested to hear about that. And he has a friend who built a brewery that sold for high eight figures, uh, but he was interested in chocolate too. So he built a chocolate company using essentially the same formula and ended up selling that a few years later as well. So yeah, it's, it's very similar to that. So as I mentioned, I teach certification exams. Um, so right now, the biggest partners that we have is Axlos, which is owned by PeopleCert, and they do Idle and Prince2. 
There's another company called CompTIA that does all of the plus exams like A plus, Network plus, Security plus, and we teach all those. And then there's another one called uh, Project Management Institute that does PMP, Project Management Professional. We teach that. Uh, and we also have Linux Professional Institute that teaches all the Linux certifications. Well, that's what Dion Training does. We teach other people's content, but we don't own the content. We don't own the exam underneath. And the challenge with that is unlike piano, where anybody can teach piano and nobody can stop you because it's been out for hundreds of years, when there's an IT certification, the company that made the certification owns the name. Excuse me. They own the name, they own the rights, and they can control who can teach it, how they can teach it, and what underlying costs there are. So for example, when I work with CompTIA, they have a very hands-off approach. Their idea is we don't care who teaches it. We don't really care how you teach it as long as you teach it because at the end of the day, someone's going to come to us and buy the exam voucher and pay us to take our exam. So if they're using your textbook or Jock's course or somebody else's thing on the internet, we don't care because we're still going to collect that $400 when they sit down and take the exam, right? That's their philosophy. Now, on the other hand, I work with people certain axolos and they have a completely different philosophy. They are very controlling over their copyright. They own the textbooks. They own the exams. They verify everybody who's going to teach it has to be certified through them and pay an annual fee to be certified to teach it. So we pay them a $2,000 a year fee just for me to be able to teach their content before I sell a single product. And then in exchange for that, I get discounts on their textbooks and their vouchers and other things, but I have to follow their rules. And for example, when I first started teaching their content in 2017, they were more like CompTIA. And they said, you can teach us anywhere you want. It doesn't matter because they're still going to take our exam at the end of the day. Well, November 1st of 2019, they made a change and said, well, you know what? For now on, we decided that anybody who's going to teach this now has to give the student an exam voucher with the training. Well, the problem with that is most of my sales were coming from Udemy. Udemy's top price is $200. My cost at cost for that voucher is $300 or was. Now it's actually up to four or $500 for that voucher. And so if I was selling something for $200 that cost me $300, I would lose money on every single sale. And so literally it destroyed my business for about a month while I had to move everything to my own site and start getting people from Udemy to my site and know I existed because on my site, I could sell that for $300, $400, $500, $600, and then I can bundle it with there. But that realization that this company, who is a third-party company, has so much control over my business and my model, and they could change it within 30-day notice like they did, it freaked me out, right? And so I kept thinking, one day, I'm going to create my own certifications, right? One day, I'm going to become CompTIA or Axlos or PeopleCert, and we're going to have other trainers out there who rely on us. And we are building a company to do that. And the company's name is Accolade, uh, AK. A-K-Y-L-A-D-E. I can't spell accolade. Um, and you'll notice it's a really funny spelled name. And uh, we can talk about that in a second too, why you'd want to do that. Uh, but there's a real reason for doing that as opposed to using something like the word acclaim or accolade with the actual spelling of A-C-C-O-L-A-D-E, right? Um, but what we're doing there is we are building a company where we create the exams, we create the textbooks, and we are authorizing other people to teach our material both in person live and online, uh, as well as uh, asynchronous training. And we partner with companies like Dion Training. They're one of our partners that's an authorized training provider, and they created courses for the certifications we are creating. Um, so that that is the answer, Chris, of what we're doing there. Uh, and it was basically a niche that I saw that uh, was solving my own problem. And even if I wasn't selling my company, I had already started this company on the side, and I specifically did not start it inside of Dion because I wanted it, A, to be something I could sell later on. B, uh, I have a partner on there, so we didn't want it to be tied to me or his name. We wanted it to be a generic thing that could be easily sold. And C, to make it an industry-wide, internationally known certification, I didn't want it to be, I'm Dion certified, because that just seems like self-fulfilling, right? Uh, so instead, we wanted a separate brand that is not 
associated with or owned by Dion Training so that Dion Training can still be the world-class provider of training it is, and Accolade can be the world-class certification provider. And by us having not just us teaching it, but anybody teaching it, it has more credibility around the world and in the industry. So that's that's kind of the direction we went with that. But very similar. very, And that's why in my sale, we had to very clearly delineate Accolade can do these things. Dion Training can do these things. Jason will not put out official training under Accolade with me and videos, right? If I'm going to make videos for these certifications, it's going to be under Dion Training. That's part of the agreement I had. And that aligned with my vision anyway, because I don't want Accolade being the training provider. I want them being the certification company. So I think that answers Chris's question. Now, going back to Lars's question, uh, can you restate? I think I missed the second half of what you wanted to ask. So let me grab that from you again. Uh I think no. It was more like what were you doing differently this time? Because now uh, you yes. answered yes. what you're doing. But like, what are you actually doing differently Perfect. to get up to speed faster, and also to prep for a sale? Because now yeah. you're actually aiming for an out, like for an exit. You know? Yep. So we'll start with the prepping for the sale first, and then we'll talk about what we're doing to, to go up to speed faster. So to prep for the sale, we did a number of things. Uh, one is this company is actually a partnership, so it's an LLC where tax is an S corp. We have two owners; each of us own fifty percent. Uh, I come from the training background. My partner comes from the uh, hiring manager uh, background, and we noticed one of the things we needed to do in the certification space is if hiring managers aren't asking for your certification on job descriptions, students aren't going to take it. Right. And we see this all the time, even with really popular certifications. CompTIA is a very well known provider. They've been out since 1994 with their first certification. Back in 2018, they came out with a new certification called Pentest Plus. It's been out for five years now. It's still not as popular as CEH, only because CEH has been around since 2000. And CEH has been asked for on every job description for a pen testing job pretty much for the last 20 years. And so, even though it's a better certification from a really well known provider, it still hasn't gained the traction that CEH has just because they had a 20-year head start. And we knew we were going to be going against that uphill battle. So one of the reasons I brought my partner in is he has such a wide network of people in the HR industry that if we can get them to start asking for accolade certified, blah, 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 people are going to start buying accolade certified, blah, 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 right? That's what's going to get us faster. So we know that the answer to the certification game is get the HR people to ask for it because that drives all your future sales. The other thing we know is it's going to be a three to five year game plan. It's not a fast thing. HR is super slow to get things updated. So we know, and we built that into our runway and we built that into our, our timeline. For us, the other thing we've done is we've already put a number on the table that he and I are comfortable with that we know when we get to that number, we would be happy to sell, right? And and our goal is to get somewhere between 20 and $50 million by the time we go to sell is, is our goal. And we know to get that kind of a number, we need to get into around a 10, excuse me, around a $10 million per year gross revenue, 10 to 15 million per year gross revenue would get us between 20 and 50 million uh, on an exit. And that would probably be at a, at a profit margin of say 40%. So if we can be making 5 million a year, for example, uh, we know we can get 20, 25, $30 million as a, a sale. And our timeline for that is we're looking at five to 10 years, right? And we just started this company back in February. So hopefully by 2028, 2030, we'll be looking to start selling it. By that point, we're hoping we'll have a million students that are certified. Our name is out there. People are looking for us. We've got you know six, six or 12 certifications out there. Um, we, we have two coming out this, this summer. We've got two more coming out right at the beginning of 24. And then we've got two more that are going to be coming out later in 24. Um, so basically by the end of next year, we should have our first six certifications out. We think that should get us up to hopefully a million dollars a year in revenue um, within the first two years. And that puts us in a good position to get to where we want to be in five years. Um, other things we did to make sure we're preparing for the sale. 
legal contracts in place. Uh, this is something I did not do with Dion training. Uh, Dion training was started by me in my basement with my laptop, not knowing what the hell I was doing. Uh, it was basically, I recorded some videos. I threw them online. I made some money. And as it got bigger and bigger, everything just kind of got bolted on and it became this Frankenstein. Um, one of the things I've done with, with Accolade is from the beginning, we have designed exactly what we're going to do for the next five years. So we have a roadmap. We have a business plan. Uh, we've already designed the website, even though right now, if you go to our website, you see a single page. We already have the back end all built out. We already, uh, in the next two weeks, we'll have the full website finished, including student portal, registration, annual fees, all that kind of stuff has already been built out and thought about. All of the contracting. Um, I'm sure that people have never done this before, gone on somebody else's website to pull out a privacy policy or a terms of service, or, oh, Jock's got this contract. I'll just use that and throw, instead of PM in 21 days, I'll just throw Jason's name on there, right? We've never done that before, right? We all do that, right? Um, those are things I'm avoiding with this. And the reason is I know that I'm trying to build this to sell and I don't want to end up having a problem later on doing due diligence where we forgot to do something right. And that's going to cause problems down the road. Luckily with Dion training, because we were doing it as an asset sale and not a company sale, um, those things were not really a big concern because with the sale, anything that happened prior to May 12th is my fault. Anything that happened after May 12th is their fault. That's the way an asset sale works. But if I'm selling the company, which is what we're planning on doing with Accolade, that means they're taking over the company with all liability and all revenue and everything else. And the idea is that they'll be able to take my name off the company and put on the new firm's name on the company once we sell it. So those are some of the differences. Um, we are spending a lot of money on lawyers up front to make sure every contract we do is legal, to make sure everything we have in writing is, is transferable. This is another thing that I found with Dion training that I was not expecting was that when I went to sell, it wasn't just my decision. All my other partners, which aren't even business partners, but they're third-party providers that we use, had to sign off on the deal as well. So Udemy, we had to get them to say, yes, we're okay with you taking Jason's account from Jason and giving it to the new company for the revenue. We do the same thing with LinkedIn. We do the same thing with all of our certification providers like CompTIA and Axles and say, hey, Jason's selling the company. The new company is now going to be owned by these folks and they're now going to be your partner, not me. Uh, and all those things had to go through. So all the contracts we're doing with Accolade Every contract we have in writing, it already has an assignability clause that says at any time, Accolade is able to sign over this agreement to a new third party, and they will now take over all the roles and responsibilities of Accolade. So if I sold this to Lars Inc., Lars Inc. is the new Accolade, right? And you can run it tomorrow just as you. Um, those are things that we didn't do in Dion training that we are doing to set ourselves up for success. That being said, um, you know, between the website and the legal and the formation and all that stuff, uh, in the last six months, I think I've probably spent fifty thousand uh, dollars on lawyers and trademarks and and designers and and websites and all that kind of stuff. Um, and you know, obviously, it's not starting out small because lawyers are expensive, as we all know, right? Lawyers and accounts are expensive, uh, but it can really, really help you uh, in the long run, especially if you're building something big. Um, I'll say, when I started out uh, doing it the Dion training way is probably the smart way of doing it. Right? Is starting out small, growing it as it goes. Um, the one thing I would say is probably once a quarter or once a year, I would take a step back and take like a two or three week period where you're not working on the business anymore or in the business anymore and you work on the business. And what I mean by that is uh, for any of you guys who are tech people, you probably have heard the term tech debt, right? Um, there's things that happen because you, you're you just working so fast that you're not going back and cleaning up after yourself. So let's say you went home tonight to make dinner for your family. You pull everything out, get on the table, you cut it all up, you cook the meal, everything's great but you don't take the time to clean it up. You just kind of throw it all in the garbage when you're done. But the table is all still sticky, right? 
that's fine. And you can come back tomorrow and clean it, right? But if you don't clean it for three or four weeks, there's going to be ants all over your table. There's going to be problems that, that, that arise. That's like the tech debt. And that happens a lot in our companies when we're running so fast uh, or building an automation and we're like, eh, it'll work for now, but we don't document it. And then you go to sell your company to somebody like, what the hell were you thinking? And you look back at it, you haven't looked at that automation in three years. You have no idea why you built it that way and why that if else condition was there and all the other things that you do. Um, and so one of the things, if you ever are planning on selling is document your processes, document your automations, everything you do, you should have a video of how you do it or, or any of that kind of stuff. Because again, if, you know, even if you're not going to sell, let's say, you know, I have a wife. Uh, and so if I had ever died, the plan was she would continue to run the business until the content needed to be re-updated and she'd either find a new instructor or we would just close down once it, it outdated. But in that meantime, for that three years, because my stuff gets updated every three years, she would be responsible for running the business, which means she needs to have to pay the bills and the taxes and, and get new students in and issue vouchers and all that kind of stuff. Someone needs to know how to do that. And if you're not taking time to document that and take a step back, you will find that when you go to sell your business, it now becomes this mountain of stuff you have to do. So one of the things we're doing with Accolade is we are doing everything slowly and methodically. We're documenting everything. And yeah, it takes us probably three times longer than it would if we just ran as fast as we could. Uh, but I know I'm setting myself up on a solid foundation, getting everything in place so that when we go into the next certification, which is going to be happening later this year, we already have all the processes in place of what we did the first time. And now it becomes a cheaper, quicker thing to do in the future. Uh, and then the other thing I would say is picking a name, right? If you haven't picked a name for your business, or even if you have one, uh, think about this from a sellability perspective. If you create a name that you can trademark uh, or a name that is uniquely yours and becomes identified with your brand, that's going to have value. And that actually is something that you get value on your valuation. That's not a multiple, right? Um, you know, I, I talked about the fact that I sold for 8X, but it really wasn't 8X, but the whole package was 8x, but that's not how they calculate it. They calculate it at a 6x. And then the other 2x was based on different things that we gave them, like proprietary tech, like our name. We have a trademark for Dion Training and the logo and the website and all these social handles. And so all that stuff had value that they were buying as part of the asset deal. And we've done the same thing with Accolade. We have a logo, we have our name, we've put in the uh, trademarks, which you know takes probably two, three thousand dollars to get a trademark. Uh, we own all of the trademarks for accolade certified which is our handle on all the social medias um you know all that kind of stuff right as things that you can do to prepare yourself and again these are things that you wouldn't necessarily have to do unless you are going to sell one day or you just want to make sure you're fully protected if you're a small lifestyle brand doing a million dollars a year no one's going to care uh, but once you start getting above a million dollars even if you're not going to sell you now become a target and having those things in place is going to help you fend off competitors or somebody else who tries to say, oh, well, you know, nobody ever trademarked the name in Piano in 21 Days. So guess what? I'm going to trademark it. Now I'm going to tell Jockey has to change his name because I own the trademark now, right? And just because you never bothered to spend the two or $3,000 on a trademark can really screw you one day. Um, now that case, you know, I don't know if Jock has a trademark or not, but assuming he doesn't, um, I could go and put in a trademark, but then it's up to him to say, oh, Jason's applying for that trademark, but I've actually been using it since 2013. Jason just started using it last week. I should be the real owner of the trademark and he could fight me on that. We can go to court over it. Um, but again, those are the kind of things that like we don't usually do as small course creators that will end up biting us in the butt later on when we try to go through due diligence. <clears throat> You've come a long way, Jason. This is this is incredible. I mean, I, the first conversation we ever had, I remember it was it was about you know 2018 was about how you could take your ten dollar courses and sell them for more on your site and what a funnel might look like around that. Now we're talking like you, 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 such bigger stuff here. It's it's really incredible. Um, Jason, do you like beer? 
I, I'm not a beer person. No, I'm a, I'm a soda guy. Sorry. I got gotcha. you. Well, we have, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with what a, a Cicerone is, but it's basically a, a sommelier, but for beers. Um, so, so that's what, uh, Chris is. And he's, he's a, uh, level three Cicerone. There's only like 140 of them in the entire world. And so he, he, um, his business is around certifications as well. And so that's some context behind the, the, the comment he left in the chat. Um, Chris, do you want to expand on that a little bit with what you were saying? Yeah. You know, so I trained for someone else's certification program. Right. And in the early days, they actually would talk about how they took pride in, in only testing. Right. And not being like, I don't know what, whatever those groups are where they like have the certification, but also are the ones who sell you all the training material. Yes. Know, and I hate that where it's like the self-licking ice cream cone where you become Dion certified, but you can only get it by going through Dion. And I'm like, that's wrong. <laughs> right. No, it's, it's like, it feels scammy and weird. And, uh, but it's a great business model, obviously for those folks, um, you know, like Princeton review kind of thing, right. You got to buy their big fat book and yep. or whatever, at least back when I was younger. But, uh, you know, eventually they saw what I was doing. I mean, I, I don't know what their plan. I don't know. I wasn't in their head, so I don't know. But they changed that. Right. And they came out with their own material, which is basically the main competing material to mine on the market. And uh, but one thing I know about them is they have their lowest level of these four levels. Their lowest level is basically like you just pay 70 or 80 bucks to take this online exam. That's like super simple, multiple choice, you know, like 40 or 60 questions in like 20 or 30 minutes. It's like the dumbest, easiest thing on earth. And, and I think, I don't know for sure, but I think that probably accounts for like 90% of their income. Oh yeah, I'm I'm sure it does because the te- especially if they become known in the industry as the thing, or if they're like, hey, I want to be get a job as a beer master. It's like, well, you can't be a beer master unless you are, you know, Cicerone certified level three, right? Well, then they're going to go right. get that to get that job, right? <laughs> so, so the thing is, yeah, the a lot of employers do actually ask their people to either have already passed that or to pass it after getting the job. It's like the most basic shit you have to know uh, if you're selling or serving beer. But, uh, and, and they have a, they have, they, they have like the roles of everyone who's passed each level on their website. So I know for a fact that they've sold like hundreds of thousands of those, but for even for level two, there's only like 4,500. And then for level three, where I'm at, there's like 170. And then for master level, there's only 22 people. Um, so clearly there that actually does, that actually doesn't surprise me. Cause I will tell you most certifications are a pyramid. And uh, I'll tell you for us, uh, it's the same thing uh, with Idol Foundation. 100% of the people take Idol Foundation. There are eight different levels above that. And for somebody to go up to one of one of those eight levels, it's about 20%, 15 to 20% if you're lucky. So it's like one out of five, one out of six. Um, so most people will just take foundation and they'll stop there. So 100,000 to 5,000 to 120 to five, that, that actually sounds about right. Yeah. No, I think um, something like three or 4% go beyond level one. And that's because most of the, you know, service industry, a lot of these people are just like doing it because they have to and moving on with their lives. It's not like, you know, only a small portion of them are actually super serious about like learning about beer and doing the psalm stuff. Anyway, point is, uh, I, I'm like my next push after I kind of get my, my act together on, on my current online courses is to 
try to push into B and B to B because right now it's all B to C. And, and I think part of that could be just making my own first level um, exam type certification. And, um, you know, I could, uh, I could be like, Hey, look, I'll sell you the whole training program and the cert and you can take the exam. And, and maybe that's only, maybe it's the same price as the other people are selling you just the exam for. Yeah. And and that's kind of the model we've taken with accolade. Um, so what we've done is for each topic we teach, we have it broken down into two certifications. We have what we call the fundamentals, and then we have a practitioner. And so the first one we came out with is called the accolade certified cyber resilience fundamentals and accolade certified uh, certified cyber resilient practitioner and the difference mm-hmm. is the fundamentals is a 60 minute 40 question abcd exam it's very knowledge based there's uh, essentially what we're teaching is the concepts around this, this cybersecurity framework which is about a 55 page textbook put out by the US government of how you should do cyber risk And so we're using that as an open source framework for it. And so you could read that book or you could read our textbook or you could go take a video course, any of those methods and go take this exam and get certified. And then you'll be like, yep, you are certified. You are part of the team. The second level is the practitioners. Can you do this as a job or as a consultant? And uh, to do that, everything we're doing there is heavily case study focused. It's still ABCD questions, but you get 90 minutes for 30 questions. And each question is almost like a page of reading. It's like, Here's this company. It's piano in 21 days. Here's what they did, blah, 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 blah. What would you recommend they do in this situation? A, B, C, or D, right? You're doing a cyber assessment on Jock's business and you found these vulnerabilities. What should you do, right? And what would the recommendations be? Um, and, and so by doing that as this fundamental and, and practitioner level, we're encouraging people to get to the practitioner level and that's where we're placing the emphasis. But to take the practitioner, you have to already be fundamental certified because if you just jump into the, the practitioner, you'll be completely lost, right? Because we want to make sure you know the definitions, then how do you actually apply it? The thing I was going to tell you is to do that, we aren't doing the testing ourselves, right? And we didn't want to p- partner with somebody like Pearson View because they're stupid expensive. They have a horrible experience for the students. They have to go in person or online, blah, blah, blah. So we found another company that's called Certiverse, uh, C-E-R-T-I-V-E-R-S-E dot com. And they partner with companies that want to make their own certifications. They will help you through the process. Uh, it is a time-consuming process. I will tell you that. Uh, we are now in the middle of our second one. Our first one is going to go into beta next week because we've finally gotten through the process and we started in January. You can do it in about four to eight weeks. Uh, it's taken us a lot longer because we had to build a company. We had to build the branding. We had to get the legal involved. Um, to, we didn't. When you do this, you're not just writing your own certification. It's not Jason wrote the certification. We had to bring in a team of experts across the industry and said, okay, these are people who are recognized experts in the industry. We brought in 50 of them. They all wrote questions and we paid them $50 per question that was accepted. And for a question to be accepted, somebody wrote it and two other experts said, yes, I agree. That's a good question. Once we had all those questions made, which was 160 questions or so, cost us about $10,000. And you can do this as either pay them up front or you can pay them based on first sales. Originally, we were going to pay them based on first sales of the certification. We opted to pay them early because I kept delaying the launch because I wasn't ready on the other legal side. And I didn't feel that was fair to the SMEs. So I was like, all right, I'm just going to pay you guys. I'll I'll get reimbursed later. It's not a big deal. Um, But once you do that and those questions are now accepted, then you have to do what's called an NGOF study. An NGOF study, you have to have at least 10 experts that are industry known experts that did not help write the exam to look at these and say, based on this question, if I had this question, how many people do I think would get this right? You know, uh, 60%, 40%, whatever. Uh, Based on that, then we go into beta and we see if the beta actually matches up with what the expert said. And if they are within a margin of error, you have a valid exam that can now be internationally certified. And that is how you get these things that become industry known, 
But again, it's a long process. Now, could you also just create your website with a WordPress plugin and go, hey, this is a certification? Sure. But will employers actually value that? Probably not. Uh, in our case, we're trying to build this and this is our IP, not just a way to sell a course. Uh, in your case, it may be, hey, you're getting this course and you're getting Chris certified, right? Then it could just be that way, right? Um, but that's the way that we had to go through that process. And they handle all of the voucher distribution. They handle all the testing. They use an AI proctoring system. So the person takes it online. It makes sure they're alone in the room, that they're not cheating. If anything gets flagged, it goes to a live proctor to check and then we can revoke their cert and all that kind of stuff. But there's lots of things like that that you can do. Um, if you want to go down that road. Um, and that's how you'd become a competitor to a well-known established player. In my world, we have to be that because otherwise the HR folks aren't going to take it. And our ultimate goal is to get on, there's a list for the DOD, the Department of Defense called the 8570. And if your certification is on that list, you are guaranteed to get sales because that is a requirement for them to hire you in the DOD as a contractor. You must have the certification for the level you're in, either IAT one through three or IAM level one through three. So if we can get our certs in there as level one manager, that's 70% of the DOD jobs. That's hundreds of thousands of people getting certified a year because they're going to be required to. Now to get that, it's going to take us three years, right? But we're going to do it. And that's what we're working towards. To answer Laura's question earlier, how are we going to grow fast? We're going to get on that damn list because if we're on that list, we're golden. <laughs> uh, I think Sean was next. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Yep. This is Sean, you're up. Yeah, Jason, very awesome, very exciting and motivating, particularly because uh, my company, we do trainings in Microsoft low-code technologies. We're also async. We're doing, we started with B2C and then we're like, forget it. My business partner has so many more connections. We want B2B. My main question is that I own about 30%, you own 70% of the company. And my main thing is just never getting screwed via like the social network movie. So it's like, I'm looking at it and currently with the contract, I could be, well, the company could just remove me and they have to pay me my 30%. Yep. Fine. I'm fine with that. And then I'm also fine leaving at any point and getting my 30%. The only thing I'm uncomfortable with, they can't figure out that I want a simpler way to do this is like, how do we measure the value of the company? Currently it's book value, which is just horrible because that doesn't Yeah, book value is not somebody. what you want. Yeah. Because you're- Exactly. Actually- yeah. For those who don't know, when we talk about book value, we're talking about if I added up all the stuff that company owns. So in my company, we own cameras, we own teleprompters, we have uh, studio equipment, we've got computers, we've got exam vouchers. And if I did book value today, my company might be worth half a million dollars. But my actual value is what I was able to sell for, which is somewhere between 10 and $50 million, right? And so you don't want book value, especially as the payout for you, Sean. Uh, so that should definitely get changed in your agreement. Um, what, the language I had in my partnership agreement for Accolade is that if either of us wants to buy the other one out, uh, we have an independent assessor come in, they look at the business and they create a value. Um, if either of us is not happy with that value, we can get a second assessor and if that comes in higher, we use that. If it comes in lower, we use the higher of the two. Um, and that's how we've done it. Almost like an, a real estate appraisal for your house, right? If I was going to buy your house for you because, you know, or let's say uh, your mom died, right? And, and she's going to leave your house. The value of the house today is your cost basis in that. And if you keep it for 10 years and then sell it for double, you're going to pay taxes only on that half you did, as long as you got the appraisal today. And so it's the same thing. If you guys are going to sell, you bring in an independent auditor, they're going to look at your books, they're going to look at your growth rates, they're going to say, if we were buying your company, it'd be worth 5x gross profits. Okay, your gross profits were a million, you're worth 5 million, even though your book value might be 20,000 because you probably only have a couple of computers. You don't really have assets in your company, right? right? Because it's all software. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Got it. Okay, so it's get an independent assessor. And then if either of us are unhappy, we just get a second one. And then you said, pick the difference of the two. 
Yeah. So, I mean, when you work with your lawyers to, uh, uh, what you want to do is address this in your operating agreement. I'm assuming you have an mm -hmm. LLC taxes, a C corp yeah. or an S corp, right? Um, mm -hmm. And what state are you guys in? Maryland. Okay. Are you a Maryland company or Delaware? Uh, Maryland. Maryland. Okay. Yeah, that's fine. Uh, the only reason I was asking is Delaware has a lot more corporate friendly rules, but you could do any. I used to have a Maryland company. It, it's totally fine. Uh, Cause I was in Anne Arundel County uh, over by the NSA when I was working up that way. Um, but yeah, so um, what you want to do is basically get a local lawyer, a business lawyer, and it'll probably cost you 500 or a thousand bucks for an hour of their time. It shouldn't be a very expensive thing, but they can amend and rewrite your operating agreement to account for those things. Um, you want to account for what I always call is the, the, the D's, right? Death, disability, disinterest, divorce, disability, uh, all those Ds are things that can affect you, right? If you and I are partners, I went into business with you because you had something I needed, whether it was knowledge or money or whatever. Uh, and in my partnership, like I said, I bring the training knowledge, my partner brings the HR knowledge, and so we think we're both valuable. One of the things we have in ours is a divorce clause. And it even says, if I get divorced, my wife cannot become his partner. She has to sell to him right? Uh, mm -hmm. Same thing with his wife. If she dies or he dies, she cannot keep the business. Like I have to pay her for his his share, but she does not have the option of staying on because I didn't join to be a partner with her. She's a school teacher. She has no value to me in the business. She's a great person, mm -hmm. but she's not why I went into business with him, right? I went with him because of his connections. And so you want to have that in your right in your agreement as well. Death, disability, divorce, disinterest, et cetera. Disinterest is like you said, I don't want to do this yeah. anymore. Pay me my 30% and I'm leaving, right? Um, because he doesn't want to have to keep you on the books forever. He should be able to pay you mm -hmm. today and not keep you on for 10 years and then sell it for 50 million and have to give you 30% of that. So that'll protect his interest and your interest. And it's it's a shared liability in that case. Um, so that's a way to do that. And then in there, you can actually have what's called the buyout clause that says at any time, if one of the partners is disinterested and wants to walk away, we will then get an independent assessment done. Uh, and you could say one person, two people, three people, whatever it is. I've seen some where they say, we're going to get three independent assessors to come in and then we'll average the three. And that is the value we all agree to. Um, or the other way I've seen it done and my original business, I had a JV agreement with this partner before we started Accolade for a different thing we were doing in that one, because we had a JV agreement, it was if either of us wanted to buy out the other, we could make them an offer. And so if I said, hey, Sean, yeah. I want to buy you out. I'm going to give you a million dollars for your 30%. You could say, no, I don't think it's worth it. I want 2 million. I'll say, well, I'm not willing to pay you 2 million, but if you want to buy out mine, since you think it's worth 2 million, my 70% is worth whatever that is, $5 million. You give me 5 million, you own the whole company. And so it's basically, you can make an offer. If I reject it and you give me a counter offer, I can then accept your counter or I can buy you out at that rate. And so there's language like that you can do. I personally like the get two assessors and average them or three assessors and average them because that way nobody gets upset and you all have already agreed to it up front of what the, what the valuation will be. And you'll get a higher value that way than book value. And that's a reasonable way of doing it. And if you guys are still relatively young in the company and you're still, you know, sub a million dollars, mm -hmm. it shouldn't be a big fight to add this kind of contract language. If you guys are already really successful or coming down the door of an exit, then they might be like, no, I want to leave it this way because I want to kick you out and, and give you book value. Right, right. Thousand, right. Um, but but that's one of the things I would do. And then the other thing for all of you, if you're married, any of you who are married, I'm sure there's a handful of us. Uh, one of the things you probably, if you have a contract with a partner, you want to make sure there's a clause in there that is about divorce and what are the rights of the spouse in the case of divorce or death? Um, because this is something that people don't think about. And then, you know, you, you got into business with Sean, you and Sean were great friends. Uh, and then Sean 
you know, marries a crazy woman and she decides to uh, divorce him. And now she owns half your company, right? Uh, you don't want that to happen. So there's a clauses you can do where it's called a marital waiver or a spousal waiver. And all my partners have had to sign one of those. I have two different businesses that after Dion training, uh, one we've talked about accolade, it's a 50, 50 partnership. The other one I have, I own 80 and the other two own 10, 10. And for each of those companies, before we start operations as part of our operating agreement, all of our spouses, including mine, had to sign away that marriage, um, that that spousal spousal waiver. It doesn't mean she's not entitled to your value of the company. It just means she cannot become the partner and kick you to the curb. And uh, if anybody watches Ted Lasso, right? Uh, if you ever watch that show, that's what happened in season one, right? The guy cheats on his wife. She says, screw him. I'm going to grab him by wherever I can and make him cause pain. And he loves his sports team. So I now own his sports team. And then she's trying to run it into the ground, right? You don't want that happening to your business partners, right? So in this case, she wouldn't be able to do that. She'd be worth the $1 billion value of the company, but he would have had to write her a check for it. And then he would still own the company. Awesome. Thanks a lot, Jason. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. This is one of those cases where lawyers, uh, an, an ounce of prevention is a pound of cure because I've just seen this go bad way too many times with other people. Uh, in my case, it wasn't an issue because Dion Training Maryland was owned by me 100%. When I went to Puerto Rico, it was me and my wife 50-50. And when we moved to Florida, it was back to me owning it 100%. And when we sold, it was just me selling it. So it wasn't an issue. But for my other two companies, I do have those clauses in place uh, to protect us because it is people outside of my wife that I'm partnered with. Okay. Awesome. Yep. Jason, since you just mentioned uh, Puerto Rico, uh, let me jump in real quick. You moved to Puerto Rico for a time, I think primarily for tax saving purposes. Um, why not wait to move back or remove to Puerto Rico a little? Like, what, Tell me about that in relation to selling yeah. this company and getting all that lump sum of money. So for you all who are Americans, I know some of us are not Americans. I know we have some uh, Australians and Canadians in the group as well. But for us Americans, we suffer from something called worldwide taxation. No matter where you live in the world, you will pay taxes to Uncle Sam, uh, whether you're in Maryland or you're in Italy or wherever else you happen to be. That holds true everywhere in the world except for one place, and is the island of Puerto Rico. And the reason for that is that Puerto Rico is America, but it is a territory, and it does not have voting rights in presidential elections. So under U.S. law, each territory has the option of either electing to have the IRS run their taxes for them, which is what Guam and the Marianas has done, or they can run their own tax system and opt out of federal IRS taxes, which is what Puerto Rico has done. So Puerto Rico has its own tax system that does not get taxed by the IRS. So if you are an American who moves to Puerto Rico and you establish your residency there, and there's some hoops you got to jump through into doing that, you then only pay Puerto Rico taxes. You no longer pay federal taxes. I, right now, I'm sitting in Orlando. I'm in my house in Orlando, and I am a Floridian again. And so right now, I pay zero state tax because Florida has no state tax, but I do pay federal tax. And so when I sold my company, I was already back here in Florida. I am a Floridian. I'm an American. And so, yes, I have to pay the IRS a huge freaking tax bill in 2023 for selling my company in May of this year. So next April, I'm going to be crying quite a bit. Now, to, jo to Jock's point, I was, yeah, I mean, it's one of the things like good problems to have, right? My, my, my grandpa always <laughs> told, told me that when he filed his tax, like, he's like, I hate taxes, but you know what? It's a good problem to have. If I'm paying $100,000 in taxes, it means I'm making a million dollars, right? Or whatever it happened to be. Um, but in 2019, my business was starting to do really well in that year. 
I had a profit between my day job uh, where I was making about 150 and my company, uh, I made about $800,000 that year. And my tax bill was like $260,000 um, to between the IRS and Maryland. Um, and I cried a little. And I started going, hmm, there's got to be a way around this. What, what, how are people like not paying these taxes? I can't imagine, you know, Jeff Bezos and stuff is paying these taxes. And I started looking around and really there wasn't a whole lot you could do except for getting to really complicated uh, charitable giving and weird structures. Like a lot of the rich people, what they do is they basically borrow money and spend that to live on. And then they only have most of their assets in paper wealth that doesn't get liquidated so they can avoid it. All sorts of weird things. But one of the things you can do is you can become Puerto Rican uh, if you want to move to Puerto Rico. And that's what me and my family opted to do. Uh, we were about to get out of the military anyway. We had always looked at going down to the islands and living there. That was my wife and I's dream place to live anyway. Originally, we were talking about the Bahamas or Grand Cayman or the Virgin Islands. And Puerto Rico is literally like 30 miles from the Virgin Islands. And we're like, well, crap, if we go there, we get tax-free uh, instead of paying taxes in any of the other places. So we ended up trying Puerto Rico. And I really loved it there. My family was not as sold. Uh, they didn't like it as much. So the reason we moved back, Jock, is my wife was wanting to come back to the States. So we, we came back. Uh, and the way the deal works is if you go down there for three years or more, you could become Puerto Rican. And um, when I went down there, there was a program called Act 20 and Act 22. Act 20 was for your business. Act 22 was for your personal. And they've combined both those programs into what's now called Act 60. Uh, and so if you just look up Act 60 Puerto Rico, you could find this out. Um, but essentially the way it works is for your business, you can get what's called a, um, a corporate tax rate of only 4%. And remember, there is no federal tax rate anymore. If you're Puerto Rican, you're paying Puerto Rico tax only. So everything I made in my business, I was paying 4% tax on, and any profits came home to me at 0%. Um, so my effective tax rate was really, really low. And then for the other part of Act 60, which used to be called Act 22, it's about your stock portfolio and your investments. This is the personal uh, grant that you have. And under that one, you get 0% capital gains. Um, for short-term and long-term. So if you're selling Bitcoin, stocks, bonds, et cetera, 0%. So had I still been in Puerto Rico when I did this sale on March 12th, uh, had I known I was selling the company, I probably would have stayed for another year. Uh, we didn't know. We moved back here in... Um, we, we moved back here and then negotiated the deal. And so I wasn't planning on selling. Had I known I was, I would have stayed there for another year because that would have saved me $2 million or so in taxes because uh, my deal was capital gains and they would have been 0% instead of 20%, right? And so that that would have saved me quite a bit of money uh, had I had done that. Um, that being said, would I recommend Puerto Rico? Yeah, I loved it there. Uh, if you are willing to learn Spanish, it's a great place. Um, there, there are some idiosyncrasies and differences from there versus America, um, or it is America, but mainland America, I guess, CONUS, uh, continental United States. Um, and ultimately, like my wife was just happier, more content up here. And so happy wife, happy life. We we moved back for wife and kids reasons. Uh, my kids are 17 and 19 now. So my kid was finishing up high school. He wanted to come back to the States. Uh, so he came back uh, first and finished up high school for the last two years with at grandma and grandpa's house. And then we came back um, late last year, early this year um, to finally move back. And we officially moved back March 1st. And then we ended up selling the company May 12th. So again, had I known that I would have been like, let's just wait another year, honey. But uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, I didn't know you're, you're Puerto Rican, John. That's awesome. Yeah. I, I lived out in my on the West coast. I loved it. Uh, I love the people. I love the food. I love the culture. Um, but I've also lived outside the U S a lot of my adult life. And so for me, it, it wasn't a big shell shock. Uh, my wife had only lived out of the U S once uh, since we've been married for the last 20 years. And that was a year in Japan. Uh, and she was on a military base. So it was a little more 
easy and a lot more Americans around. Whereas in Puerto Rico, especially on our side of the island, I would say probably 20% of the people spoke English. Uh, the other 80% were really Spanish only and their Spanish and my Spanish were not the same Spanish because I learned Cuban Spanish in Miami and Puerto Rican Spanish is definitely different. <laughs> but yeah. Wow. But instead we moved to Orlando, which is basically little San Juan. So uh, we've got a million Puerto Ricans here in Orlando and my office, like literally the restaurant next door to my office is a Puerto Rican bakery. And I go in there and I get my Puerto Rican coffee and and, and uh, speak my Puerto Rican Spanish. So, so I'm, I'm still happy. <laughs> but that's the reason why we moved back, Jock. It was really a family thing. Got it. Yeah. Makes sense. Uh, all right. Well, John, John's got a question. You're up. Yeah, Orlando's definitely little Puerto Rico. So uh, yeah, after 2017, after Maria, there's about a million Puerto Ricans who moved up here. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, I'll, I'll keep it short. I know we're, uh, we're going long here, but hey, congratulations, Jason. I just want to say uh, a wealth of information here. Like my mind is blown, and like Jacques, Jacques said, you know, like from where you started to where you are now, it's incredible, incredible story. And uh, when you when we met up, I believe it was February. Uh, like I spent like what, two or three hours with you and it just totally changed my mindset on, on business and how to do things. And I've been thinking a lot. So really my question is around, you know, at the time you were doing kind of a, a coaching business or starting to, you know, do coaching for people trying to transition into cybersecurity. I'm in, I'm in UX and, but I don't teach UX. I help people try to land a job and, and really, so that's more the coaching aspect. So my question really is around that as I as I try to restructure things. I did a lot of coaching in 22, found that I really love it. And if you know, if you think, do you think I can kind of take that? It's not as automated, obviously, as 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 you know, uh, courses and putting out courses, but what are your feelings around coaching and growing that potentially into a multi-million dollar business? I know people do it. I'm just not sure like the model to follow. That's why I'm with John. Yeah, you, you, you totally can. So, um, yes. yeah, you can, but it does become more tied to you. Uh, and you have to think about that as you're building out your program, if you want to be able to sell, right? So I'll use uh, Jock's OCG coaching program as an example, right? OCG is Jock. He is the online course guy, right? Now, could he make this into a way that it's not him doing the coaching every time? Heck yeah, right? Uh, I know I see Renato here every time we get into a meeting and maybe at some point Renato is going to know enough where it's like, okay, Renato, you're taking care of the Genesis group. Jock's only dealing with the people who are in the scale group, right? Um, or Jock brings in a second mini Jock who's going to be helping him with that, right? Or something like that. If he can do that, now OCG has the ability to be sold because it's not reliant solely on Jock, right? And even so, Jock could sell his business as OCG coaching if he wanted to, but he would probably have like a five-year earnout, right? Where they're saying, we're going to keep you here for five years. And during that five years, part of that is we're going to make sure that you're building the mini jock who's going to take on the other stuff and, and work through. Um, and so that's the challenge you have if you have a business that's solely focused on you and your coaching. And, and we call that more of a service industry, right? It's not as productized because you know if jock doesn't do these things every, every other week, we're going to get mad because we're paying him for the live coaching component of this, right? Now, the rest of his content is all on demand and great. But you know what? He could change his offering where you're getting live coaching, but it doesn't necessarily have to be from Jock, right? Jock might have a bunch of people like me and he goes, you know what? Uh, you know, the first week of every month, we're going to have Jason come in and talk. He's going to talk about scaling and selling. And then the second week of every month, we're going to talk to Renato about processes. And the third week, we're going to talk about, you know, Chris with marketing. And the fourth week, that's when Jock shows up, right? And if he had a business like that, it'd be very easy to sell because not solely dependent on him. So this all goes back to how you build your business and is it productized or service-based? Uh, I see a lot of people who do when I was doing the um, the interview thing, the way we had ours set up was we had it as a 
uh, a funnel fed model. So every day they got a new video, kind of like a uh, jocks 21 day piano course. Right. And on the seventh day they had to fill out their resumes and then they came back and my partner would go through and give them individual feedback by video. Kind of like jock did when we all got into OCG, he looked at your website and gave you that 15 or 20 minute video and said, here's what you need to fix. Here's where your problems are, blah, blah, blah. That's what we do with people's resumes. And then the second week after they go through six more videos, they go into our interview system, which is an AI-based system that collects 10 responses. It gives them questions as if they were in an interview. And then it grades them based on how they look, how they sound, what their answers were. And then we give them feedback, another 15, 20 minute video saying, yeah, when you said this, you should have said that. When you did this, you should have done that, blah, blah, blah. And then the last week that we did after their next seven videos, we would get together as our group coaching session for that cohort and everybody would get together and we would do a live two hour session, right? So that was very productized and anybody could have done the reviews or the uh, the resume reviews and the interviews. In this case, it was being done by my partner, Kip. I never looked at any of them, um, but we could have replaced him with somebody in the Philippines, somebody overseas, and they could be doing those as well. That was where our plan was for scale. We just decided not to go that direction anymore and we shut down that part of our business and we shifted over to a different format. Now, the reason we ended up doing that was for us, it was a really high cost product to deliver and we couldn't seem to get it above $1,000 at the price point. We were able to get it to sell for $1,000 and we sold up to 10, 15 of those a month. Uh, and so it was doing pretty well. The challenge was for each of those that we were delivering, it would take my partner, Kip, at least an hour and a half per student or two hours per student per month. Right. And so if we had 15 of those at two hours per month, that's 30 hours. It's almost a full week of his work. Right. And the challenge is he was a consultant or is a consultant in his own business as well. And he charges 500 bucks an hour. Right. And so if we're selling this course for a thousand dollars and he's getting 500 and I'm getting 500 out of it. Right. His part's 500, but he has two hours of work. He just cut his hourly rate down to 250 an hour for us, right? And then on top of that, he was still doing the coaching with all the students for an extra two hours a month as well. And so it started getting to the point where because of the cost of the people we needed to do that work, it wasn't sustainable for us uh, to make a, a profit of it. And we're like, we could start diving into doing ads and starting to sell us for $2,000 for the session and all that kind of stuff. But uh, do we still want to deliver it in that manner? And so what we ultimately decided to do is we took that program that we had, we turned it into a Udemy course that is just completely self-driven. We took out the resume writing, we took out the interviews, and we took out the, the study group, those three live session things, and we just sell it over there and it sells for 50 bucks and we have a lot more people going through it, getting a lot more benefit out of it, and we're making decent money with it. Um, but it's zero effort for us now because it's all just automated in the background. And it is fully productized. So the answer is, can you build it? Yes, but you have to be intentional about how you build it. So it's not all relying on John. Now today it can all rely on John, but if you want to sell one day between now and then you need to bring on a second or third instructor, or you need to be able to productize this or make it so it's asynchronous video and, and that those kind of things, because that is where the scale comes into play. Because if I did the model you have right now, and I gave you a thousand students next month, you couldn't support them, Right. And that's the problem. Um, so we had to figure out, and same thing with Jock, right? In OCG, if I give him a thousand students tomorrow, even at $5,000 a month each, he's not ready to take those students because he's not built for that. He only has him as the, as the instructor right now. And that's totally fine. Uh, and this becomes a great lifestyle business, but you are going to be scale capped at some point. Uh, or he gets to the point where he goes, okay, I've got a thousand people who want this. Well, if they're paying 5,000 a month, they get Jock time. If they're paying less than that, they're paying a thousand dollars a month. They just get asynchronous video library or whatever it is. And you can do those type of things where it becomes, as you have more demand, you can raise those prices. Um, the other struggle that we had in that, and I don't know if you're running into this as well, is the people who needed our services 
had a really hard time affording our services because we were teaching people how to get a job, how to write their resume, how to do their negotiations, how to do their interviews and all that stuff. Well, that's great if they already have a job and they can afford it. And so what we started doing in our marketing was we were targeting people who were already in IT, but they weren't in cybersecurity. And most people think they're the same thing, but they're not. IT is usually you know, somewhere between twenty dollars and $80,000 a year. Cybersecurity is low end 50, going up to 250 a year. And they're very similar skill sets, but it's all in how you get into that positioning. And so if I could find somebody who's making $50,000 a year, who has three years of experience as a uh, IT administrator, that is my perfect candidate because he can afford $2,000. If I can get him a job in the next eight weeks, it's going to pay him double his salary, right? But if I'm trying to get somebody who's at McDonald's making $8 an hour flipping burgers and say, hey, I need a thousand bucks to help you get into cybersecurity, they're going to go, dude, that's two months of my pay. I can't afford that. And, and so that became the challenge is how do you get those people in when they need your services, but can't afford your services? And that was the other thing why me and Kip decided to make it into this asynchronous course that could be bought for $10, $20, $30, $40, as opposed to $1,000, but they're not getting the handholding they were getting before. Super helpful. Thank you. Yeah, definitely. Jason, can we do one more question? Certainly. Okay. We'll do one more. Lars put something in the chat, but Lars, you want to go ahead and verbalize that question? Well, it, it, I'm... I think you basically answered it now. Uh, yeah. Would you, because I was, yeah, before you started answering this, I was wondering if you, if you were to start again, would you build a business with one course being more high ticket or would you, but basically you answer that. You, I, I think you, you basically well, said that, you know, because of scaling it, it's easier to do that with. Yeah. Depending not, on who you're selling to, obviously. Yeah, not always. So, you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with the model that Jock has for either his coaching program or his piano course, even though both of them are a single offer with a single funnel, right? And both of those can be scaled extremely huge. I mean, there is a unlimited number of people who probably want to learn piano. Uh, I know I was one of those ones for years. I'm like, I want to learn piano. And, you know, during the pandemic, I'm like, you know what? Screw it. I'm buying Jock's course. And, and I've made it through about a handful of days and then I got busy and I haven't gone back, but I need to go back, but I've gotten up through day five and I can play a little now on piano and, and I feel good about that, you know? Um, but it, it's, it's, I don't think it's necessarily one or the other. It depends on what do you want in your business. This kind of goes back to what I said all the way at the beginning, right? You have to decide, do I want a lifestyle business? Do I want a business that I can sell or do I want to grow this thing myself and one day become, you know, the next Udemy or Uber and IPO and, and make billions of dollars, right? I don't think I was the guy to ever get us to an IPO, right? Um, I don't think that was ever going to be me, right? Um, I was kind of surprised I was able to get us to a big sale, right? And and I was never planning for that, but I'm doing that now and the other things I'm doing. As far as for me, um, the way I end up in the business model I'm in is because of where I came from. And I don't know, and Jock and I have even talked about this on this podcast. I'm like, if I started all over from day one, would I do it the way I did it? I probably wouldn't, to be honest. Um, I think if I was starting over today, I probably would do more of the OCG model, right? Um, and, and not the fact that his coaching program, but the way he teaches us to do a funnel, pick a product, and you now have a very easy and targeted way to do advertising. Now, there is some danger in that because if you choose one product, like for instance, I maybe I chose the Security Plus as my certification, right? Or um, Chris is choosing the beer certification, right? Whatever that thing is, and people don't care about that anymore because now nobody's drinking beer, everybody's drinking, I don't know, um, Moscow mules, right? His business is going to go like this, right? And it's close all your eggs in one basket. Whereas for me, I've got 42 products. And so I have some products that make a couple hundred a month. I have some products that make 25,000 a month, right? Um, or more. Uh, and it just depends on the product. And so I will tell you that 80% of my sales come from 20% of my products. And you know, twenty percent of my products, you know, make up the majority of my sales, right? Uh, and that is the basic Pareto principle that happens in a lot of places. 
Um, so I like the fact that by having multiple things, uh, there's more room for growth. The other nice thing about with my brand is people have now gotten used to the fact that I teach multiple things in multiple areas. And so they know they can come to me for cybersecurity. They can come to me for project management. They can come to me for IT service management. We now have cloud courses. We're now adding hands-on penetration testing courses, right? And so now we have these multiple verticals. And if I can get somebody into one of them and go up that vertical, I can sell to them four or five, six times, right? And uh, if I just started and focused on one vertical, that would have been fine. If I just focused on one course, that would be okay too. But eventually you're going to want to expand either the number of students, um, and this is kind of the big drawback with Jock's piano businesses. He only has piano in 21 days to sell. So if he wants to increase his sales, he either has to increase price or he needs to increase the number of people going in his funnel. And he can do that by more ads, more SEO, more podcast interviews, whatever it is. Um, or if he had another thing like, you know, piano in three weeks uh, or whatever that, you know, advanced piano in 21 days, uh, they can then have another one after. And it's like, okay, now that you finished your 21 days, and you spent 500 bucks. Well, here's another one you could buy for 300 bucks. It's another week of improvisational jazz or how to read sheet music or whatever. There's other follow-on products he could do. He hasn't, he's chosen not to do that. He's chosen just to keep it one simple funnel. Um, And there's a lot of benefits to that, but that's because I think his focus is a profitable business. That's very little uh, for him to run. And he is able to focus on as much automation and as little as possible of working on that business. Whereas the model I've chosen is I'm going to create a lot of content and a lot of courses. So I'm always filming something. uh, And then we're able to have more products to offer. Uh, Is one better than the other? No, it really depends on the business you want. And from a sales perspective, one is not better than the other either. The one nice thing about my model and one of the things that the acquisition firm liked about us was we already proved that we can take content from Udemy and sell it on our site at 20 to 30 times the cost of Udemy, right? So on Udemy, we're selling something for $10 and on our site, we're selling it for 300 or 400 or $800. And it's because we've created a differentiated product offering between the two. And because of that, we know there's a lot of other instructors on Udemy who haven't figured that out yet. And so one of my friends is actually, who's been on Jock's show before, I'm not going to mention his name because we're in talks to possibly get him to join us. Um, but um, you know, he is a, a cloud-based instructor and he's really freaking good at it, but he's only on Udemy. On his own site, he's done like 1% of his sales. I'm doing 26% of my sales on Udemy and 74% on my site. And so if we could take my model and just grab him and his 40 courses and make him now Dion training for this pipeline, uh, we can instantly grow him overnight like 3x, 4x, because we know how to do that. And that's one of the things that the company liked us for is that they could see you've done this, you know how to do it, and you've shown that you can do this with other instructors. If we buy other brands and bring them into you that are already in a good area, why not? Right. And they can bring them under us because that person is known under his name. He's not known for his, he has his name and he has a company. Nobody knows his company name. Nobody cares. He's never, he's never really dove into that. It's, it would be like, we all know Jock. We all know piano in 21 days. Well, nobody knew piano in 21 days. They only know Jock. Right. And so his value is in being an instructor, um, not the fact that he has a brand. Whereas people know not just Jason, but they also know Dion trading in our industry. So that had value into it. So the answer to your question is, if I was doing it again and I was starting small and I wanted a lifestyle business, I would totally go with the jock model, building a funnel, keeping it small. Uh, I would do high ticket and less people because it's a lot less stressful. Uh, I will tell you, I have you know a million Udemy students, which means I have probably 5,000 Udemy questions per month to answer. Um, I will tell you, I don't answer those. Uh, my team does, but we answer about 5,000 questions a month from students. And if you were doing that on Udemy and you were by yourself, 
you would eat up all of your time just answering those students. I have four people full-time that all they do all day long, eight hours a day is answer people's questions, right? Um, because I was doing it myself before and it was eating up all my time, right? Um, people, And I'll tell you, on my site, we have only 25,000 people. We have a lot less questions on our site. It seems like people who pay more ask less questions. And I don't know why that is, but they ask for less help when they pay more money. I don't know if they're smarter. I don't know if they are more dedicated to go through it themselves uh, or they're afraid to ask or what. Uh, I know, Doc, you you offer like free one-on-one piano tutoring and people never take you up on it, right? Even though right. it's part of their package. Uh, yeah. it, it just sounds like a great thing to offer, but nobody ever takes you up on it. So <laughs> I know I had my OCG. I, I think I had like three uh, meetings with you. I think I used one of the three in my first year. Yeah. So uh, it's the same thing. You know, we just don't get around to it sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think I think the answer to that is is so uh, dependent on so many different factors. I think it certainly depends on what your desires are, and it depends it depends on the desires of the your ideal customers as well. So, for example, I think um, you know Jason really enjoys making new courses more so than the average person, and so that's one reason he ended up in forty with forty two courses. Another reason is because his ideal customer. Um, once needs is asking for those types of courses too, right? So my ideal customer um, probably isn't asking for additional courses as much as his, but they certainly have to an extent. So for example, they finished my course, my piano course, and they're like, okay, I'd love to learn how to play jazz. Well, that's the reason we have a course called Jazz in 21 Days. I'm not the instructor, but I also don't sell it on its own. It's a bonus in my high-end package because I really value overall simplicity um, in the business more so than like, um, certain levels of growth, right? Because my goal has always been lifestyle business as Jason talked about at the, kind of at the beginning, right? Um, now if you could tell me I could do this, 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 and this and have an eight figure exit one day. Okay. Maybe, but, um, thinking about how I started and the, and the goals that I had when I got started reading four hour work week and just creating that lifestyle business, very, very happy, you know, with, with where I'm at and with the, with the business. So there's a huge spectrum there. There's no one exact way to do it. Um, but also cool that you would say you would do it more my way, Jason. Thank you for that. You didn't have to say it, say that. I mean, I'm just being honest. If I was going to do it and start from scratch, I mean, like I, at this point, like I would want a lifestyle business, right? I'm not looking to necessarily create the next Uber, right? Um, that being said, if you want a big business, uh, where I see the growth and the big business is being the platform. Right. And what I mean by that is uh, I mentioned I have two new companies, one I told you guys about, which was Accolade. The other one is still in its infancy and we're still designing it and building it. Um, but it is called Certistry. And uh, if you've ever used Quizlet, um, I find there's a lot of problems with Quizlet and we're going to solve those problems. Right. So we're going to become a competitor with Quizlet. Uh, they are, you know, a $75 million valued company right now uh, that was bought by a private equity firm. And I think if we do the product the way that we're talking about building it, uh, we can hit that. 25, 50, 75 million very, very quickly. And it all becomes a matter of how many students come in and use it uh, because that's it's all about a growth game in that case. But in that case, we are not creating any content. We are creating the product and we are creating the platform. And then we're going to have other companies and other instructors come in. So for example, you know, if I want security plus questions, Dion Training is going to provide those. But if I want beer questions, I don't know anything about beer, but Chris does. So I could say, hey, Chris, why don't you put all your questions on there for your new certification exam? And if right. everyone that a student uses, you're going to get two cents per question, right? 
there you go. And he gets a royalty every month, costs him nothing. It's pretty much like the Udemy model, but we are going to have a better practice dimension than anybody else. And the way that we're doing it, we can tie it back to the certifications and tell them what their pass rates are. And we're using AI and ML to do that and all sorts of cool crap like that. But that's where you really get your huge exits. Uh, you know, why is Uber worth a billion dollars? They don't own any taxis. They don't own any cars, right? They own the platform that all these cars run around on and that service. And that's what made them so valuable. Um, I, I do, I just started working with Brainscape to do not, not anything for them, but to host my, my material. So I would love to see something even better out there. I'll have to take a look at Brainscape. I haven't looked at theirs specifically, but I have looked at most of the other ones out there. And um, anybody who's in the certification space can probably attest to the fact that there are really crappy exam engines out there. Uh, we're yeah. using a product called Brilliant right now to do our practice exams inside of our courses. And it was so bad, my team has now built their own exam system that we're replacing Brilliant with. Uh, and then we are going to be building our own as a platform with my other company for uh certistry, uh, which is going to take it to a, a whole different level. <laughs> uh, but yeah. And, and the other thing is, you know, we talk about e-learning, like AI is changing a lot of the stuff we're doing now. So there's gonna be a lot of competition coming out. Um, and I think it's, you're going to hear a lot of naysayers saying, Oh, it's over. E-learning is dead. You're not gonna be able to make any money anymore because somebody in XYZ country is just gonna be able to go into chat GPT and print out a script and go record it using uh descriptive AI voices. And they're going to put you out of business. Uh, I will tell you, um, people said that when I joined the community in 2016, the e-learning community, everyone was saying, Oh, it's too late now. It's already over. Um, and it, it's now been seven years and I don't see it slowing down at all. In fact, it keeps going. I see the same thing with the stock market. People always say, Oh, it's already so high. Why would you buy it? Uh, it's almost the highest it's ever been. Yeah. And if you look back three years, it was the highest ever was there too. And you go back 10 years, it was the highest ever was there too. Over time, there's this growth. And if you got to get on at some point, you can't just wait for the, the drop-off to jump in. So um, I, th I think just be aware of that and keep an eye on your competitors and see what else is out there. And if you create better content, um, people are going to continue to buy it, right? I mean, everything I teach is online for free on YouTube. Like th there's nothing I teach that's, that's amazingly interesting, but the way I teach it, people love. And, and that's why they keep coming back to me, right? Um, and I'm sure it's the same thing with your, all your stuff, Lars and, and, and John and Chris and everybody else. Like if I want to learn beer, I can go online and get a Udemy course for 10 bucks, but it's not going to be the same as your course that's 300 or 500 bucks, right? Um, all the things Jock teaches us, uh, there's other places out there we can learn it, uh, probably for a lot less, right? But we go because we have a connection with him and the way he teaches it and the way he's structured it. Um, yeah, so th that's kind of my thoughts. <laughs> huge, huge, huge thank you, Jason. Really, really appreciate it. This was incredible. Uh, just so everybody knows, uh, this is something that I was going to approach Jason with to see if he'd be uh, interested and willing to to share this information. Uh, I thought this was a topic that would be very interesting for us, even if we're nowhere close to being able to sell it. It's I think it's really in interesting and inspirational to see you know how we could be setting things up now or what's possible in the future. Um, and before I could reach out to Jason, he reached out to me asking if it's something that he could present to us. And if that's something, you know, I thought would be interesting. And so he initiated this conversation. I couldn't, couldn't be uh, more grateful and thankful, uh, for that. And then to execute on it is just, uh, uh, incredible information. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I, I'm glad to do it. Um, you know, it's one of those things that like before I sold my company, I never really talked to anybody who had sold a company. And as I went through this process, uh, both the acquisition firm that was buying us was like, hey, here's our other founders in our portfolio. Here's all their names and numbers. Call them, see, see how they feel. And you know, one of the big things, even Jock, I reached out with uh, one of your friends who had also sold his company. And we had a, a good conversation for probably about an hour and a half 
about, he's like, hey, before you sell, here's all the things you need to be thinking about. And it had nothing to do with the amount of money or the earnout or any of that. It was, what are you going to do afterwards, right? Because if you sell this company and walk away in two years, which I don't have any intentions of walking away and they don't have any intentions of letting me walk away. They want me to stay. Um, but let's say I decide in two years, I don't want to do this anymore. What are you going to do next? And I was like, well, I already have this other company I'm really excited about and I've been working on. He's like, oh, okay, then you're good. Um, but that was one of his things is like, he sold his company for X millions of dollars. And he's like, well, I don't have to work anymore. What do I want to do? There's only so much golf you can play. So many cruises you can go on, right? You got to have a purpose in your life. And the reason I do what I do is because I enjoy it. And um, I, I enjoy the whole business aspect of this. And uh, it's one of the reasons I'm in Jock's program is I really enjoy the conversations we get to have as part of the genesis and the scale groups as, as we talk about what we're doing to build our businesses and what that ultimate exit might look like. Um, and most people are just too afraid to talk about it, uh, even though like I think it's awesome stuff. Um, yeah. So anyway, that's, 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 that's my two cents on it. I, I love this whole business stuff. So I think it's interesting. <laughs> Awesome. I think almost everybody has commented at some fashion in the chat just how how helpful this has been, how interesting this has been. So that's gonna that's con going to conclude it. Thanks everyone for being here, and thanks again, Jason. Yeah, have a good one, everybody. Bye, everyone. First of all, I can't thank Jason enough for doing the workshop and then allowing me to share it with you all here in the podcast. I am sure that he's listening to this, so let me just speak to him directly for just a minute, Jason. Your story is so inspiring, so inspiring for me and, and many others. Not only have you found incredible success, obviously, monetary, but from everything that I've seen, you do it with just such integrity and generosity. So once again, huge congratulations for the successful sale. And, uh, and thank you again for your generosity with uh, allowing me to share this with, with so many people. And thank you all out there for listening to this uh, yet again for another episode. Thanks for being here. I hope you found this topic and this workshop recording as valuable as I did. You can find the show notes for today's episode by going to oc.show slash 207. That puts another episode in the books. We'll see you next time.